What's up, fantasy nerds? Welcome back to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, joined, as you know by now, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? Returning special guest, Craig Hanks, is back with us today. What's up, Craig? Word. Word. Go go back to the legendarium. Mm, yes. I would, I would and, but you guys keep calling me, so... <laughs> we can't resist you. We can't resist you, Craig. And today we have a really exciting episode for you guys. This is episode 87. We are wrapping up Brandon Sanderson's Words of Radiance with parts four and five. <laughs> Gentlemen, I can promise you that we are going to have an excellent theory crafting segment today. But before we get there, let's do business as usual. Drew, would you kindly recap for us what's happened at the end of this book? Uh, I'm going to try. <laughs> Give it your best shot, my man. So where we left off. At the end of part three, uh, Kaladin had just been imprisoned for demanding a boon uh, after helping Adolin defeat four Shardbearers at once. But before we get into the main thrust of the narrative, we had another set of interludes. Starting off with Lift. Oh the yeah, I forgot. young street girl who is apparently an edge dancer and has some interesting things going on where she can turn food into stormlight. And her whole deal is she wants to steal food from the Emperor of Azir. She, along with a, another group of thieves, break into the palace, but she's apprehended by a constable of some sort named Darkness, as she says, uh, a man who uh, who has a pale crescent on his cheek and astute readers will recognize as the same man who killed Yim earlier in this book the cobbler he wants to kill her because she is a night radiant but she uh, uses her regrowth powers to resurrect one of her fellow thieves Gox and the uh, powers that be in Azir decide that Gox is the emperor and he uses his his authority as emperor to pardon lift and make darkness leave her alone from there, we go to Zeph, his only interlude in this book. He is hanging out at Urithiru, the only place in the world where the stones, you know, or the only place in the West where the uh, the the stones are, uh, you know, allowed to be walked on. I thought it was He's the freaking east. out. I thought it was the East. Oh crap! You're right. It is the East. <laughs> Shinovar's in the West. Pardon me, I will just say this right now. It's been a long day. <laughs> I'll leave it Fair at enough. that. Anyway, um, he, he is contemplating his issue. He has fought Kaladin. He thinks, oh no, the Knights Radiant are in fact back. I was called truthless for thinking they were back. What is going on? What, what am I going to do? And he... And, and he decides, you know, like, you know, I have to, I have to figure this out. And then we go to Eshonai, once again, uh, who is convincing the Parshendi to transform and uh, has basically turned their entire nation into whew, a pretty direct killing force. But before that, a small contingent led by Thude, her once mate and uh, kind of sidekick among the Stormforms, leads a group of Parshendi away. They escape somehow down into the chasms to avoid being termed, uh, turned into Stormform. 
From there, back to Kaladin. He's in prison. Wit visits him. We find out that Adeline has imprisoned him as a form of uh, himself as a form of protest. Kaladin is eventually released, but he is so angry at Elokar that he gives the shards he won to Moash of all people. Dalinar is now in full steam ahead mode to dive into the center of the Shattered Plains, trying to convince other High Princes to help him. Sadius embarks on a whole campaign to discredit Dalinar before assassinating him. Out on the plains with Kaladin and Shallan, that assassination plan goes into, uh, into motion. A bridge is broken. Kaladin and Shallan drop into the chasms and are left behind. They have to bond and find their way back. They defeat a chasm fiend. Not not like like Spren-style bonding. It's just regular, (laughs) good old-fashioned bonding. Regular old bonding. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, along the way, we find out, you know, Kaladin sees that Shallan has a shard blade, and we find out that Shallan's shard blade can change shapes. She uses it as a knife to carve out handholds and uh, and a cubby for them to survive a high storm in the chasms. She's so blase they about do, it. They do make it back alive, just as Dalinar is preparing to strike off into the center of the Shattered Plains to fight the Parshendi. And unfortunately, Kaladin will not be joining them because he was injured by the Chasm Fiend and Syl is gone. He has broken his bond with her. He cannot use Stormlight anymore, and he has to heal normally. We have... Oh, man. <laughs> we, we have a final set of interludes. We have Lan, a, uh, a, an ardent in Kolinar, who is very, very safe and very satisfied with the station. A new ardent comes in and upsets things and kicks off some riots which is something we'll deal with later on. And uh, and then we have a Teravangian interlude. Very interesting. He becomes the king of Yaakoved, and we find out about the diagram and Teravangian's whole plan. We find out he is smart on some days and dumb on others. We find out he went to the Night Watcher with the intent to save humanity from what is to come. Zeth approaches him and tells him, look, the Knights Radiant are back. And Teravangian says, no, that's impossible. Uh, there must be, you know, somebody stole an honor blade. That's totally what it was. Somebody stole an honor blade. And then we go into part five. Dalinar and Navani and Shallan head into the Shattered Plains while Kaladin remains behind. Moash sets in motion an assassination plot that Kaladin stops. He swears the third ideal of the Knights Radiant and reforges his bond heads out to the Shattered Plains just in time to save Dalinar from Zeth's return as the Stormform Parshendi summon the Everstorm. And we have basically just a whole ton of fireworks from here on out. Kaladin kills Zeth. Uh, Shalon finds the Oathgate. <laughs> the Alethi army is trans, uh, transported to Urethiru. And at the end, Zeth wakes up again. The Herald Nalan has resuscitated him and given him night blood. Hang on, you can't say the name of that weapon at this point. Yes, you can. Uh, I can. We haven't opened our Cosmere-wide spoiler discussion yet. What are you doing? <laughs> We're going to let that sit. 
Okay, Drew's making an although, although decision. Although I will say, there, there are a couple more things. There are a couple more things that I have to talk about. Dalinar Arbon's the Stormfather. Renarin yep. reveals himself as a Truth Watcher. We have four Knights Radiant at the end in Urethiru. And Adolin, the son of Dalinar, soon to be High Prince, kills Sadius. Know your place, trash. In the eye, uh-huh. with the knife, in the hallway. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I solved it. And yep. then in our epilogue, we once again have a wit point of view. We have a monologue from him about the nature of art and, and uh, storytelling. And then, of all people, a meeting with Yasna Kolin. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, yeah. And Dalinar has a particularly interesting dream right before he meets, or I should say right before he, he bonds the Stormfather. He does, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh my god. I don't even know. Like, let's just jump right into style. We have to get this ball rolling. So we have two sets yes. of epigraphs to discuss today. The first mm-hmm. is the second letter, which is response to the letter, which made up our chapter epigraphs all the way back in part two of The Way of Kings. We get juicy details about the Cosmere as a whole. And I, I imagine, you know, most of what we can talk about here with the second letter, we'll probably have to wait for our Cosmere spoilers discussion later in this episode. But we also Very have... Very likely. We also <laughs> have Teravangian's ramblings to discuss that are the, the chapter epigraphs in part five. So um, I'm really excited to talk about those. But what do you guys want to get out of the way first? Uh, okay. Uh, oh, sorry. Drew, I, I figured since you talked for eight minutes straight, maybe it was my turn. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, if you want to take it from here, go for it. I would I would like to give my uh, vocal cords a rest no, after I, that synopsis. The reason the reason I want to go is because I have one style point, just the one, <laughs> and, oh. and then you guys can take it away. But it's one, and I, I know it's one that Drew would bring up if I didn't, and, and so I have to go first. And Yeah, you got to beat him okay. to it. And this is something that I, I feel like we've even referenced this on your show in the past, and I, I can't quite remember, but I hate Lyft. Ah, uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> now, amen, brother! <laughs> so, yeah, this is... Um, I, I don't know exactly what the, what the technique is that he's going for here. It's possible that he is uh, trying to write her young because she is trying to stay young, and so she's deliberately being annoying because she thinks that's what 11-year-olds are supposed to you know, sound like or whatever. Whatever the case is, she's annoying. Her the the prose surrounding her is annoying. Um, I, I I frankly detest everything about the lift stuff in this book, <laughs> and I, I don't think I I will be with you guys for Edge Dancer if you do that. But we already uh, did that. Oh okay. yeah yeah we uh, that episode will be uh, going live I think tomorrow oh, okay all right. tomorrow as of this recording not tomorrow of this episode so, going live. <laughs> so your listeners probably already got a uh, an earful from you about this but uh, i i so i guess i'm echoing that i dislike the lift stuff Thank uh, you. his style in the in that uh, interlude is no bueno as far as i'm concerned oh yeah we had yeah. over an hour long episode on edge dancer just recorded a couple weeks ago and oh boy did we both especially me i laid into lift there I was, oh god yeah i i defended lift a little more in that than i uh am going to do right now uh because edge dancer gives us more of her and it gives more context for what's going on but in this interlude especially very frustrating uh, uh where where rob 
dislikes Shalon, or at least Shalon's point of view early in this book. Yes. Um, because of her unwillingness to confront information, especially juicy information that would give us really cool answers about things. Mm. Brandon employs the same uh, narrative technique in Lyft's interlude, where there is a character present, willing to divulge information, and Lyft stops it from happening. Lyft constantly interrupts Wendell when Wendell's, like, starting to talk about the Night Watcher and cool stuff with Investiture, and Lyft's just like, blah, 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 I don't care, you're a Voidbringer. Like, that is a frustrating thing to have to deal with as a reader. And, uh, and, and I understand why Brandon chose to employ that technique, but even if they were reasonable narrative you know motivations behind that it's still frustrating as hell (laughs) i don't i you know i get that as a as a literary technique you know as a way to kind of dangle information and then frustrate the reader i actually don't have too much of a problem with that the frustration for me is uh do you guys know you ever uh you ever read those dispatches from the heartland like if you read the new york times or the washington post or the la times or something every once in a while they'll send a reporter out to you know, Iowa or Tennessee or something, you know, or Colorado. And, sure. You know, yeah. And, yeah. and they, they come back with these wild tales of the rural folk and their strange ways. And, you know, and they don't quite have the vocabulary to talk about the way people live outside of their coastal cities or whatever. Anyway. And yep. so it's it's often funny and often frustrating to read that kind of thing. Similarly, I feel that way with this, where it's like Brandon is he's trying to take us into a young person's point of view. Ah, this is how young people talk and think. And it just feels so uncomfortably uh, off and foreign. It's like a, it doesn't it's, feel awesome. It's <laughs> Oh God, don't even use that word. That's, that's the A uh, word in my presence. It's young people as a second language, uh, you know? Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. you are, you are absolutely correct on that. And, and like I said, I mean the, the whole awesomeness thing, Ugh. And it's no. It could be that I'm it's sorry. Some, no. It could be that as we learn more about her and her journey and all that, that it will kind of make sense for why she's stuck in this mode or whatever. That this was a very intentional choice on his part, and that's all fine. But it's very annoying to read yeah. right now. And and when we're digging into the writing aspects of it, the way Brandon Sanderson presents, uh these books is that they are artifacts translated into English. And there are many different languages in the books and, and, you know, the words are, are just translated, you know, into English in the best way they can. Right. Pretty standard fantasy style. But, but when you start getting things like awesomeness or a lot of the puns that wit makes, whether you can even call some of them puns, it that that explanation breaks down. Because, you know, a, a joke like Wit saying, oh, insults? No, you're in sluts. Like, I'm sorry, that doesn't work for an in-world language being translated to English <laughs> and then turned into a pun in English. And it's the same thing with awesomeness, where awesome works as a word, right? A, a like, the root of it, awe. That works for what Lyft is doing, right? And to her, she thinks it's awesome. 
But when you're translating it through those multiple, like, multiple steps of, uh, like, uh, I, I don't even know how to describe it, like, uh, steps of linguistic evolution I'd and then translating yeah, yeah. into English, it starts breaking down. And that's why I'm, I'm generally willing to give Brandon a break when he uses modern terminology in fantasy. I know a lot of people really, really hate, uh, you know, they're like, oh, it's anachronistic, whatever. I don't necessarily have that problem. It can't be an anachronistic if it's based on a fake time period in a fake world. You know, you could just say, well, in this time period in this world, they use that term. Okay. Generally speaking, I'm willing to give Brandon that benefit of the doubt. But it's when his his modern terminology starts breaking down at a linguistic level, given his explanations for the linguistics in his books, that's when I start having problems. Things like mm. the infamous homicidal hat-trick uh. in Hero of Ages. You know, like, these are the things that that bugged me. <laughs> yeah, you uh, you nailed it, Drew, when you said that part of what I what I, what I loathed, and I'll use the past tense there, loathed about Shallan in, in previous episodes does absolutely carry over to what I detest and loathe about Lyft and continue to detest and loathe about Lyft. And that's the fact that I'm the kind of reader that looks for these juicy little tidbits, <laughs> and when there's somebody who is so willing to give us all these juicy little tidbits and, and, and Lyft is just, no, I don't feel like doing that. I am too quirky to accept this kind of information right now it, it really really frustrates me quite a bit and I, I i ranted about her in our edge dancer episode if you want to hear exactly what i what i think about lift all you have to do is is, is listen to the edge dancer episode that we recorded i'm not gonna go too much more into it today because i feel like i've already had my my share of, of bitching about low uh, can, about uh lift can i just say on that note like i said a moment ago it doesn't really bother me that he does that um i know it bothers you a lot rob but let me just point out that uh like i'll draw another parallel here this one to george lucas right george lucas uh, okay okay so maybe not like in the best of, of odors these days among many fans but he is uh he is a marketing genius straight up no there, there's no there's no way around that he is a oh, yeah. marketing genius you know because he knows how to string people along and and uh keep the story going and get more money out of your pocket. It's kind of a similar thing here where Brandon could just as easily give you those answers, but he oh, yeah. knows that if he gives you those answers, then there's not going to be anything to reveal in the next book. There's not going to be any tie in to go into this series or that series or whatever. He, I, I, I don't know how much of it is conscious and how much of it is unconscious. Uh, but whatever it is, whatever combo, it is genius the way that he has strung us along to make us want to get to the next book, the next series, uh, to make us, uh, like, not just cry and moan for Stormlight 4, but we need uh, Mistborn Era 2, book 4, because we need those answers, you know? It's, uh, it, it is str yeah, it straight genius. You are absolutely right. I, and and that's why, you know, I'll say, like, yes, it's frustrating as, like, an in-the-moment reader thing, but I understand why he does it. It is a legitimate 
writing technique. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's why I hate the character, you know? not the author. Yeah. I mean, it's you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a brilliant device, and I and I wish him well in it. I can see, objectively speaking, how deft he is in applying it. It's just, as a reader, it's so frustrating, and that's why it's so good. That's exactly <laughs> why it's so good. So, I, I want to move on to... Yes, uh, now that we've bitched about Lyft for 15 minutes. Another, another style thing, and, and this is really... I don't know how much we can talk about this, but Kaladin killing Zeth. Oh. I have never seen another author, certainly not one as high profile as Brandon Sanderson, post-publication redact and change a scene in a New York Times bestselling book. I have. Oh, okay. I'm I'm very curious about this. His name was J.R.R. Tolkien. Oh, with the Hobbit. Yeah. But I uh, was massive, that really like massive changes to Chapter Five in the Hobbit uh, pre Lord of the Rings publication. So no, I your point still stands. This is not something that is normal to do, and I think you should talk about what those changes were and why he made them and all that stuff. I'm just saying this isn't the first time that something like this has happened. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm not saying that it, that it was. I, I guess I just, I don't know. For some reason, I didn't think of The Hobbit as like a similar thing. But that's a really good point to bring up because he he dramatically changed The Hobbit once he was, you know, planning on bringing Lord of the Rings to the forefront. You know, changing The Hobbit to be much less a, a children's book and more a prequel to an adult fantasy. Well, yeah, it's, it's yeah. so yeah, the idea there was that he wanted the ring to acquire a capital R, which it didn't have in the first mm -hmm. book. And I, I mean that in, you know, more than one sense. You know, suddenly it's not just a ring, it's the ring. You know, and mm, so yes. Capitan, yes. So he needed to change chapter five to fit the lore that he was creating for this sequel yep. book. Um, so yeah, it's a, a pretty similar thing. But yeah, go please go. Move forward. Tell yeah, me yeah. about the changes. But anyway, uh, so I, I don't know if either of you, when you read this, reread it this time, uh, if you read the hardcover version, uh, or if you have ever read the hardcover version. Oh yeah, no, I, I I have the hardcover version just to support Brandon. But every single read I've done has either been through my e-reader here or audiobook. Okay, yeah, because in the hardcover version, Kaladin, if if any of our listeners are not aware of this, uh, Kaladin. Absolutely straight out kills Zeth. He he chops straight through his spine with the shard blade. Zeth dies. Yeah. And his eyes burn and smoke. Yeah. Yeah. Soon after publication, Brandon changed his mind about this scene. And he said, you know what? No, this isn't in keeping with Kaladin's personality, with what Kaladin should be striving for with his recently sworn oath. And he made it so that Kaladin simply chops through Zeth's wrist, and it breaks the bond with the honor blade, and Zeth lets himself fall. He he unbonds the honor blade, and, and he's like, I want to die. And he falls into the storm, and he smacks against the plateau. Um, I don't agree with that. I see. I, I understand why Brandon made that change. I also understand why Brandon wrote the scene as he did in the first place. But I think the most 
interesting thing about this is that he felt confident enough to say, post-publication, like soon post-publication, no, no, this needs to get changed. Let me just rewrite a couple of paragraphs here, and then every subsequent edition of this book will get published differently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that is wild to me. That is so wild. It's hang, pretty, on, yeah. hang on to your first editions, kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. I still have yeah, it somewhere you, around here. Yeah, your, your first edition Words of Radiance has an alternate scene, and your first edition Oathbringer says, book two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out and, and say that I don't quite buy that entirely. I don't think that it's, that it's simply because it's not Is Craig getting up Kaladin's... to go look at his, his Oathbringer? <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Oh, it's got the paperback. Nice. No, this Ooh, is the, I don't uh, know if it'll be. This is the arc. Oh, Ooh. flexing hard on the Inking Out Loud podcast. I see yeah, how it geez. is. Uh, the the signed arc. Uh, now it says book three here. No, so in the table of contents, okay, it says book two. Uh, table of content, book two, Oathbringer. All right, there you go. <laughs> damn, All damn, right. I wasn't even aware of this one. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know if I would entirely buy it that this is simply a, a choice on Brandon's part just because he doesn't feel this is in Kaladin's character. I think it goes a little deeper than that because let's be real, Kaladin has watched Zeth kill members of Bridge Four and kill many other people. I think deep down there is a magically mechanical reason that. Kaladin needed not to kill Zeth in that moment. Something about the way that Nail decides to uh, revive Zeth, and maybe that might not have been possible if his spine had been severed entirely. I don't know entirely what it would be, but I'm thinking it's something along those lines. I just, I think it's deeper than simply this being out of Kaladin's character, because I still think it's perfectly within his character to, to protect those he loves in his own mind by ending this threat right here and right now after it's already damaged him and his loved ones so much. Yeah. So I, Craig's opening a, 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 (laughs) Oh, a a thematically appropriate beer for the conversation we're having right now. Um, (laughs) uh, I, I understand your point of view, Rob, and I understand Brandon's. I think I, I, yeah, like I, I can't, argue against his decision to change it but i don't think it was a real problem the way it originally happened hmm. yeah i don't have the so, context to, to know either way i just so, I want to say that i'm a little suspicious here's the, the sense that i get from it honestly is um <laughs> you know some authors would they would publish the book they would put it out there and they'd be like take it or leave it whatever you know you schmucks yeah. can argue about whatever you want to argue about who cares Pay me money, right? I <laughs> I get the sense, and I and I actually like this. I don't think this is a bad thing. But Brandon Sanderson is a fan of his own books. Oh right? hell yes! And I, I love I, that. And there's probably some sort of narcissistic quality that somebody could complain about there, but I don't think that's a big problem. Like no, you I think to, you have to be. So, uh, you, uh, Drew, you and I have both been to his office uh, and his his lair, and there's all sorts of just like. There's all sorts of his own stuff, you know, the original artwork and the, yes. the artifacts and all that. So like, he jealousy. loves, he loves you, these books. You are and on so, to something right So there. what I'm saying is that, like a bunch of fans, after the book is published, they start picking it apart. And they're like, oh my gosh, you know, you can imagine the forum threads about, oh, Kaladin should never have done this. This doesn't make any sense with this character. And he does the same thing to his own books. 
because he's a huge fan. So, <laughs> I, 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 love I would, I think I want to take that idea because I think you've pretty much nailed it, but expanded a little bit. It's not so much that he's a fan of his own books as he is a fan of epic fantasy. Okay. And Brandon Sanderson thinks that the Stormlight Archive can and will be the most epic of epic fantasy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he wants it to be as perfectly epic of epic, epic fantasy as he can make it. And so, like you said, I mean, he he thinks it's cool. I mean, he, like so many of the rest of us, read these scenes as he's writing them, right? He's writing it thinking, this is the coolest damn thing that has ever been written, you know? <laughs> and and when we're reading it and we're thinking, this is the coolest damn thing I have ever read, that is what Brandon Sanderson wants. And that's why in his lair, in, in Cosmere House, you know, whatever, like, he's got paintings from his world. He has the original paintings of his book covers. He has a fan-made shard blade that's eight and a half feet long hung above the staircase because it's cool. Yeah. And no, when yeah. he finds cracks in the coolness, he wants to fix it because it gets less cool that way. And how often, you know, like how much would we all love as fans to be in a position to do that. You know, he's oh, a, yeah. He's a huge fan and he's the guy who can say, "Oh, you know, yeah, we're going to plaster that that crack." Which sounds exactly. filthy. That sounds filthy dirty, but <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I've got another euphemism to get to later that we're going to laugh about, I think. But uh, yeah, let's continue with our style discussion because we are like 35 minutes into this episode. We haven't even got to characters, let alone our insanely long Cosmere discussion to get to I, later. Okay. I think okay, I yeah, murdered so, Drew. Yeah, sorry, I, I was taking a sip of beer and, and wrong hole? it went down the wrong pipe, yeah. Gotcha. Maureen also went, euphemism. Oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> phrasing? Is that still a thing? Um, That's still a thing. I watch Archer. <laughs> Hell yes. Uh, right. So, do we have any more style points before we move yeah. into the character discussion? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, talk just very, very, very briefly about the humor. There was a few great points of, of, of funny in this section. I particularly enjoyed a naughty joke that Pattern told Shallan that he'd overheard from some of uh, Vatha's men. Yeah. And this is, this is another instance where Brandon's humor lands for me. When, 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 when Pattern gives that punchline, I didn't realize they were charging body parts now. I actually really had a legitimate laugh out loud moment. I do, I did like that joke, and I, for a large part, like the humor that Pattern brings to the forefront. What do you guys think? Uh, I think I agree with that. I, I don't know how to explain it. A lot of the jokes that landed in this book, especially in these last two parts, for me, are of the same type yep. as a lot of his other humor. And I'm like, I don't get why this terrible pun joke made me laugh when this other one made me just roll my eyes in exasperation and wish he would never write another pun again. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> I don't understand it. Yeah, I had that exact same moment about something else. I can't remember what it was, but within the last few weeks, we had an episode where I said, this is normally the humor that I hate. Why do I like this so much? 
I can't remember what it was though. It'll, it'll come to me later. Well, okay. Can I posit a, a possible theory here for why it's a little more palatable with Shalon and uh, Pattern? And that is because no, Craig, we just have you on here for your looks. Go ahead, man. <laughs> uh, I laugh because it's obviously true. Um, <laughs> when when we read the lift chapters, there is no break in the humor. Yes. Right. It is. Yep. It is wall to wall lift being lift. Right. And so it's, it's. So I think it's just wearying. Whereas when you have Shalon and Pattern, it's peppered throughout. It's seasoning, right? And so when you when you have something like that, it's a little bit easier to forgive or to enjoy when it's uh, Shalon's storyline tends to be a lot more intellectual and a lot more emotionally heavy than somebody like Lyft, <clears throat> right? And so when you throw in those bits of yeah. stupid humor... It's just, I don't think it's that complicated. It's just easier to take because there's less yeah. of it uh, by well, percentage. I'll, I'll even run with that a little further. I think it's simply because the scene doesn't revolve around setting up that joke. A lot of what I detest about the Lopin, which I've been open about previously, yeah. is, is Kaladin being so oblivious and perfectly setting up the Lopin for his next punchline, despite the fact that it kind of, for me, goes against Kaladin's character because he's a really clever guy, all said and done. But he's so clueless around the Lopin at times to set up the Lopin for the next joke that he needs to make. The scene at times seems to revolve around setting up this joke and then setting up that joke whereas precisely with Shalon and Pattern it's just there's a, there's a little bit here there's a little bit there and we don't focus on it it's just seasoning as you put it I actually I, I love the way you put that yeah I think that's a really good point uh, maybe it just comes down to when Brandon is clearly trying to set up a, a reader to laugh versus when it's offhand it's, when it's, it's organic Yes. Yeah. Like, I I think this applies a lot to the humor in the Black Company, for instance. You know, we talked a lot about that, Rob, on our episodes for that, where mm -hmm. it it just feels like natural and offhand. Like a guy like cracks a joke, and and you're like, oh yeah, you know, you kind of get a little chuckle out of that. Whereas Brandon feels very deliberate about setting up punchlines. And when he doesn't have that deliberateness to it, and somebody does just offhand crack a joke, I'll laugh at it. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I it's mean, the it's know. the kid. There are two kids in junior high. One of them tries way too hard, and the other doesn't. And yeah. everybody loves the other one. <laughs> yeah, the only thing I yeah. take issue with there, Drew, is your use of the word deliberateness. Well, yeah, I mean, from an authorial <laughs> standpoint. All of these, uh, maybe it was uh, being deliberate. Uh, Rob, maybe that's jokes, uh, but... maybe it's deliberance. Oh no! Yeah. More puns on the podcast. I'm hearing <laughs> dueling banjos right now. If I had my guitar out, I'd probably play that for you guys right now. <laughs> Thumbs down. Yeah. No, um, um, I still have one style point to get through, okay, and we haven't okay. even gotten into characters yet. Oh my god, this is going to be a long episode. In. Yeah, um, as long as we're talking about possible Brandon quirks, there's a certain quirk that he's been displaying with his dialogue for a few years now, and it's, I don't want to say it's starting to exasperate me, that's way too strong of a word. It's something that stands out a little heavily to me every time he does it. And I made a brief mention of this in uh, last episode, I think it was, of Moash's, Moash's, wow, Moash's revelation 
about the king murdering his family. And I also briefly alluded to this moment from in our Star Sight episode, a moment where he does this as well, but I'm not going to get into that. That's outside Cosmere. But it's it, this is what it is. It's a moment where two characters are talking, um, and one will make a seemingly random statement, or even a random word, and the other party has to stop and think backwards in the conversation to realize that, oh, they're answering a previously unanswered question. In this part that I'm talking about, it's... Shalon and her excursion with Iatil, where in the middle of negotiating Iatil's company on this mission, the other woman just stops and says, Iatil. And then Shalon is confused, and she actually tilts her head, to which the other woman has to remind her, no, no, my name. You asked earlier what my name was. I now, remember I, I you really... complaining about this on our Starsight episode, and yep. on our, um... Uh, is there not, one I forgot? Not Sanderson, um... Oh, the, the god-awful Jen Lyons book. Oh, really? I had one to bitch oh, about Ruin in there? Of Kings. Ruin of Kings. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you had a similar thing where, where, where there was, like, an interrupted conversation that oh. the character replies to it, you know, going back pages, and, and you were like, Oh, I would never ridiculous. put Brandon in the yeah. same category as Jen Lyons for this reason, though. <laughs> I want to say I really, really liked the way that Brandon did this with Moash. In his instance, like, Moash was elaborating on a promise to Kaladin several chapters earlier to explain himself. Oh, when you talked about the, um, like, last episode in the training ground. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, and I glowed about it last episode, about how much impact this moment has because of the nature of this whole slice-of-life scene in which it was placed. And I did also enjoy this moment in Starsight, for reasons I can't get into right now. But this one instance with Iatil and Shalan, right before they embark on their little mission, this particular quirk of dialogue in this instant didn't land for me. I felt like it was 1% of 1% just too much. <laughs> you know? Okay, okay. So, that's it. That's everything I have to talk about for style today. I'm ready to go into characters. All right, let's, do you guys let's start with Kaladin. Let's do it. And okay. I'll say, I don't have a ton to talk about with Kaladin, because I feel like, in these two parts, Kaladin is an extraordinarily straightforward character. Mm. Yeah, He is a yeah. guy who, who made a really bad decision at the end of part three, and works off that bad decision for all of part four and then in part five his conscience gets the better of him and he makes one good decision and so it's good writing in that sense you know we have in part four of a book we, we you know we have our our general narrative line where where you know the the low point hits just about two-thirds maybe three quarters of the way through the book and then and then the characters have to find their way out of it it's perfectly done but he's not particularly complex in this section <laughs> no he doesn't need to be i wouldn't think he is um i think it's worth noting that this is where shallan begins to catch kaladin's eye and it's it's a little hard to blame the guy i mean she's fun she's incredibly intelligent she's beautiful and, and most importantly, she, she makes him happy. She takes away some of the pain. And I will never forget that first moment when she actually levels with Kaladin in the chasms, when he realizes that she's been through every bit as much heartbreak as he has. And he's in sheer wonder, in awe at her ability to laugh, to joke, to fight back against the one thing that he doesn't know how to fight, depression. And while that moment when he's looking into her eyes and he sees it, and I quoted here, the anguish, the frustration, the terrible nothing that clawed inside and sought to smother her, she knew. 
It was there inside. She had been broken. Then she smiled. Oh, Storms, she smiled anyway. It was the single most beautiful thing he'd ever seen in his entire life. That moment, that's the moment right there where he really began to see Shalon. Not just a light eyes, a prim little light eyes, a spoiled light eyes. He sees Shalon Devar. And I think in a small way, that's a moment that most, if not all, young men, at least definitely with myself, I can speak for myself here, can remember having had at some point in their young life. The moment when you realize this girl in front of you is amazing. I, I, I love the visceral, like, implications in that moment. And I just, it, it's something that never, never uh, fails to impress me when I come across it. I loved it. So I love that moment too. And I probably will come back to it a little bit later in the episode. But mm, I, wonder um, where. I do want to mention that that scene in particular is a great moment for us to reflect on something that he's doing with all of his characters. This The idea behind the Knights Radiant is that they're all broken in some way, mm -hmm. right? That's what Syl says to him. He, he says, I'm, I'm broken. And she says, that's what they all were, silly. Yeah. Um, and so these are all broken people, but they're broken in very different ways and by very different things. And so, as you said, Rob, she has uh she has this ability to smile through something that should threaten the kind of depression that has taken kaladin well she has been broken by avoiding confronting any of her demons as much mm -hmm. as is possible and that has broken her in some way whereas kaladin can't stop confronting everything at all times mm -hmm. and there's and there's something about both approaches that has uh, that has broken each character, and I think there's something there for readers to take away as well. You know, there's yeah. um, it, both of them have taken something to an extreme that has uh, yeah. that has laid waste to their psyche. One hundred percent, I agree. She knows how to fight. Like I said, the one thing that he doesn't know how to fight, uh, he finds so much beauty in that. And so. Okay, I have two things to say about this. I was mostly going to save them like for for Shallan's character discussion, but I guess it's both. Uh, the main thing is, Rob, you brought up this is the beginning of Kaladin's attraction to Shallan, and and you are right in that there is a definite romantic uh, kind of undertone to what happens in part four with them in the chasms and coming out, and and Kaladin feeling some jealousy. Uh, Toward, toward Adeline, yeah, and uh, in, in part five. But it is also important to note that in the same moment, he thinks about how the way she makes him feel yep. is yep. the same way Tien made him feel, and that is a distinctly unromantic thought. Of course, yeah, you know, and and I think that just goes to show the level of brokenness with Kaladin at this moment in time, he is so shattered as a person. His, his loyalties are divided. The, the one thing he has found identity in, uh, coming out of his darkest moments as a night radiant is being torn away from him. He can't use stormlight anymore. Sill is gone. He is a mess. And so I think it's a pretty clever thing Brandon did having Kaladin start this romantic association uh, with Shallan 
and then at the same time uh, show, not tell. Eh, eh. Yeah, yeah, okay, um, okay, okay. Show how his romantic association with her is founded on you know something that's never going to work out because it's not uh, why he's attracted to her isn't really romantic. It's something that he got from his younger brother, right? It's just his mental health. And so this is, I love that you drew attention to this, Drew. Um, This is is something that is, uh, it's kind of a a pet topic of mine, IRL, I suppose, that, Mm. um, that there is, there's a lot of confusion when it comes to romantic feelings versus, you know, what does it mean to be a friend to someone? And uh, a lot of times people get those confused. Um, Absolutely, and, yeah. And, and, it's, uh, and it's something where you have to pull back just because you, like, you could even say the word attraction is uh, used incorrectly oftentimes these days, where it's like being attracted to somebody simply means you want to be around them. They pull you towards yes. them, right? And mm-hmm. that, like, somebody can be attractive to you in that way without there ever being any sort of romantic spark. You don't have to invent something uh, because... It, I, I don't know, what is it, you know, society or some other uh, thing that we want to pull in and say right. something has taught us incorrectly how to think about relationships um, in many circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I do, I do mm-hmm. want to draw a really quick point to uh, notice, if you will, that Shalon, of course, is a light weaver. And I'm fairly certain it's confirmed at this point that Tien himself was a proto Lightweaver as well. Yep. And this, I think there is something deeper about the connection between Windrunners and Lightweavers that haven't been explored. Especially, be, I mean, this... think about the fact that take what look at look at the heralds. Who is the patron herald of the Windrunners? That would be Yezrian, and his daughter is the patron herald of the Lightbringers. Lightweavers. Sorry, Lightbringers. The hell am I saying? Lightweavers. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, that, that is something I had not considered before. But but I think you, you may have a good point there. This is like the, uh, the trombone section and the flute section in my high school marching band, right? They're just destined <laughs> to intermingle. <laughs> I, I was trumpet. I can't tell. I can't speak on woodwind instruments or woodwind instruments. Wait, no, no, instruments. nobody liked you, so that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was the obnoxious <laughs> trumpeteer. You were a skybreaker. Yep, yep. Hey, about right. I, will, I will brook no skybreaker slander here. Oh, just to wait. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> F the Skybreakers. I almost cursed for the first time this episode there. Uh-uh. Oh, I'm not on board with them. Fight me on it. Anyway, that's, uh, let me see here. Is there anything else about Kaladin here I have to discuss? Um, okay, so we, we see, okay, so we've seen, at this point, we've seen Kaladin fighting men. We've seen him fighting monsters. We've seen him fighting to protect, and we've seen him, at times, admittedly, fighting Adolin, right? Because he's pissed off. But now we finally get to the meat and potatoes of his character journey. We see him finally confronting himself. And everything about Kaladin's journey, like leaving the chasms and rescuing Shalon, being left behind on, on Dalinar's expedition, it, it's, it's, it's all amazing. I don't know what else I can say about it. His realization of his own hypocrisy and his underestimation of Elokar. And that scene he had with Elokar that really opened his eyes, and Dalinar's love for his nephew, his decision to follow his heart, to come to the king's rescue, his complete selflessness and his defense of the man that he does admittingly hate, 
his willingness to sacrifice himself for that ideal, the the return of Sil, the flight to Narak, his arrival, his battle with Zeth in the skies above the clashing armies and the renting storms. This is, in my opinion, as good as epic fantasy can get. I don't know what we're getting with Rhythm of War yet, but I find it hard to conceive of anything more spectacular and exciting and gorgeous than Kaladin's journey and his climaxes in part five of this book. I Whoa. wish there was a stronger term than chef's kiss for this one. <laughs> well, Rhythm of War aside, I want to I want to dial back to the beginning of that rant there. Okay. The scene with Elokar. Yes. Is so good. Oh my god. I could rant about that. I love it. And, and Rob, you know this. Uh, Craig, I don't think you know this, but... Before this book even came out, I wrote a scene in, in, in a fantasy novel, much like this one. <laughs> and when I read this, I, I got, I, I mean, I, tears in my eyes, you know, one of those moments. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a superly emotional person. Um, but there are there are definitely moments reading books that do have a a solid emotional impact on me and at times will make me cry. And uh, I've talked about some of them on past episodes. This is one of them. And a big part of it is because I I really resonate with this idea of somebody who feels responsibility but has no clue how to step up and handle that responsibility and is trying so hard to figure out how do I do this? How do I meet the demands placed upon me when I've got no clue? I'm so far in over my head. Hmm. I'm grasping at straws and then he meets Kaladin and he's like, this is a guy who gets it. All the things I don't get, this guy gets it. Of course I'm just going to be blunt and ask him. But because of their, their you know, different stations in life, he, he can't just do it. And it takes him to get drunk. Yeah. But this is one of those, yep. you, know, you know, from the writer's perspective, alcohol is the writer's best friend. And I don't mean that in the sense like, oh, you got to get drunk to write. I mean that I your characters get drunk. And interesting shit happens. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's very, very fair. You know, and I, I've definitely seen moments uh, of that in some of your writing as well. <laughs> yes. Oh, you're damn right. <laughs> I damn, damn, damn. The, have, in yes, fact, that that may you know, in in you know, if I'm super, super lucky, some day down the line, somebody's doing a podcast criticizing my work. They're probably going to be like, "Oh, this guy leans on." Uh, people drinking beer as a crutch you know <laughs> so <laughs> to make things happen <laughs> I, I i actually love that scene and i love that you brought it up and maybe this would fit better in the style section but real quick let's talk about elkar getting drunk um because a lot of times uh a writer will mistake what a drug does to their character, particularly right? someone who doesn't yes. consume alcohol or, at all. Yeah, somebody who doesn't consume alcohol, maybe somebody who doesn't uh, doesn't smoke weed or do other drugs or whatever. They'll mistake the what the effects of those things should be. And in this case, he nails it because what it does, alcohol, it doesn't change your personality. It's a psychic amplifier. 
it brings out what is latent within you. Um, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. Right. Yeah. And so and so Elicar, he doesn't change his character. He simply says the things that otherwise he might not be willing to say. And so I guess it's just one of those like take note. You know, other authors, uh, anybody who's going to put drugs or alcohol into a scene, just remember, it's not that it is going to change that character. It's just going to make them able to say the things that they might not otherwise be willing to say or do. Depending yep. on the intoxicant. I mean, there's other drugs. That well, just... yeah, yeah. I'm not I talking, mean, if, I'm not talking about bath salts, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Fair enough. But no, I mean, I think this is... Uh... A, a real point in Brandon's favor. Like, this is a very publicly Mormon writer, a guy who, as far as I know, has never had alcohol in his life, and and I have no reason to doubt that, um, considering the way he leans on some of his beta readers for feedback on alcohol-driven scenes. Um, <laughs> I would love to propose myself here, being uh, well, uh, alcoholic, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> no, but, and, and, and I'm, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this more in Oathbringer, but, but this particular scene, he really nailed it. You know, th yeah, this did. is exactly the way, you know, on, on the occasions that I get like outright drunk or have gotten drunk in the past it is that kind of a thing where if if I if I have been deep in my cups so to speak and I'm in a relatively intimate situation you know I'm I'm talking with one of my friends the things that tend to come out are what I have wanted to say to my friend but have always felt like, oh, you know, social norms forbid me to talk to a guy friend of mine in this way. Or uh, I, I have to reserve my emotions in this way because of what masculinity, you know, says I have to be. You know, things like that. And then you, you have say it, three or four say the or word. five. Say it. Patriarchy. <laughs> Getting political on episode eighty-seven. I'll, I'll throw in the word toxic before. Yeah, I thought you were going to say go. toxic masculinity. Yeah, but but yeah, you, you get three or four drinks deep, and and it's it doesn't change you, like Craig said. You know, it doesn't it doesn't turn me into my friend Bob. You know, it it turns me into drew with a looser tongue <laughs> like yeah. and and so that's why in books when you can get a character who has deeply repressed things in a situation where they're drinking alcohol or using drugs of one variety or another obviously not you know some of the really crazy things but you can have happen for your plot Right? That's how you move it along. Yeah. You, you have a character with deep-seated issues who's who's so repressed and, and so self-absorbed that they're in this endless internal feedback loop. The way you break the internal feedback loop and make it external, put a couple of shots in them. Like, boom. Thank you. We have finger moss. We have <laughs> finger moss on Roshar. I feel like we're... Uh, 
Oh, we're, we're calling forward here to Oathbringer, and uh, there's yeah. going to be some spoilers there. Well, yeah, I, no, I mean, I, I wasn't particularly. I was really talking about Elokar. Yeah, here, no, but, I know, I know. Um, well, yeah. we'll we'll talk about we'll talk about alcohol things in Oathbringer when we get there, and yeah. and I may not be as complimentary there as I have been here, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, uh, I, I think we should move on to Shalon now. Yep, sounds uh, good to me. Um, she her arc in this book is just so good. You look at Shalon at the end of this book, like what it really took to get her to say her truth about killing her mother versus where she was on the ship with Yasna at the beginning of the book. This is a tremendous character arc. And in these last, you know, two parts, this is her becoming Shalon Davar, the light eyes, the noble woman where we have scenes of her telling a, a council of Dalinar and Navani and generals and high lords and, and high princes, we must do this. <laughs> and Dalinar's like, I, I wasn't aware we elected Shalad Devar as, you know, the general of our armies. You know, like, and, and the progression makes sense as we see it throughout the book, but if you just took the beginning and the end, you're like, what the hell? These are two different people. So if you look at Shallan in book one versus Shallan at the end of book two, yes, you oh. have two very, very different people, right? The pivot point on which this whole character arc turns is the conversation that she has on the boat with, yep. uh, with Yasna about how power, power is the illusion. <laughs> it's the perception of, uh, of authority or what, you know, however mm -hmm. she says it. Um, and she takes that and, you know, we kind of talked about this in part one where then she meets up with the, the bandits in the caravan and she kind of starts to put this into practice uh, in a couple of different scenarios. And by the end of the book, she has she's no longer thinking about that conversation. She has more or less internalized that conversation. And so she has the authority because she demands it. And, yes. But she no longer thinks about how she needs to demand it. She just does it, right? It's becoming an instinct. Yeah. So at the beginning of this book, she learned that power can be an illusion. And immediately after that, she started performing power because she knows it can be an illusion. And by the end of the book, she is no longer performing it. She no longer has to think, oh, I have to put myself out there as this and fake it. She is doing it. She's making she's, it. She's, she yeah, was yeah, making yeah. it. Now she's if, making it. If I'm yeah, maybe like, permitted like, to use the phrase, fake it till you make it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is a very natural character progression. It's beautifully done. It makes total sense. And, uh, I don't care what people think about the uh, the alternate personality of Vale. Uh, vale was instrumental in this. Oh yeah, she was. Yeah. You know, like like Craig said, there was there was the inciting moment when she has the conversation with the Asna, and then there was a pivot point, and that was when she created Vale, and that was when she went from faking it to herself. Telling herself, I don't belong in this position of power, but I will act like I do. To creating a personality who believes she is in control. 
And and once she has that uh, mentality, she no longer has to fake it to herself. She is it. And whether she's in Vale's persona or not, now Shalon can perform that power. I I mostly agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do have more on Shalon to discuss here, but there's some no, noise go ahead. upstairs I'm just going to wait a few seconds for. Sorry, go ahead. Take it away if you'd like. No? We're good? Okay. Sweet. All right. Now that the noise <laughs> has quit, I can keep going. So, I agree. And, and I, I want to say that with Shalon, I want to draw a point to her excursion with Ayatil again. Even though I, I did earlier, I, I still want to discuss it a little more because it belongs in her character development. This this mission that she has with Ayatil is, is engrossing for me. I loved it. Her cleverness in, in managing to bring that mysterious woman along but still hide her subterfuge was nothing short of brilliant. The way she uses pattern to distract the woman as she light weaves her face or actually removes I think she removes the light weaving from her face, to be more accurate. The manner in which she solved the problem of, oh, damn, Ayatel's company is, is going to be a little bit of a wrench, a little bit of a spoke in my proverbial wheel. And so she makes up this story to the Ardens about her sister being possessed. The hiding in Talinalat's cell and jotting down his ramblings before, again, her plan goes totally wrong and she has to improvise her way out of it. That's what I love so much about her character here, her sheer improvisational talent. Shalon is so brilliant and so clever and she's so good at what she does. And and I, I said this earlier, but Pattern's presence is becoming more fun as well. He has a legitimate moment that makes me giddy to this day. I wish, I, this is going to sound a little weird, but I wish I could pet him during moments like this. And that's where <laughs> Shalon begins her exchange with Ayatil by drawing her out. She light weaves a version of herself and attaches it to Pattern and then tells him to begin their plan, to go out and retrieve this information. And he goes, yes! And he streaks off quickly, a little too quickly. And she, it, it, the text actually says, excited to be part of the lie. I love that line. And there's, it, there's something so downright adorable, particularly since he's so impetuous about pattern here. And the fact that she has to tell him, slower, 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 go slower, just like we practiced. I just, I love pattern. I love him. Well, you were right about one thing, Rob. That did sound weird. Yeah, a little bit, right? How do you pet a spren? You have to go into into shades more, and then it gets really freaky. Oh, jeez. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I'll, uh, well, I'll admit to it. So, uh. Sorry, go ahead. Let me, let me uh, throw something out for you. I mean, we're still talking about Shalon, but Pattern is a part of that. So, yeah, that's fine. We can talk about Pattern. Is the reason that we find Pattern's humor more palatable the fact that he is... Um, he is truly childlike in a way that uh, Lyft only kind of pretends to be. With Lyft, she's presented, I said this during our Edge Dancer episode, I think, she's presented as like a 13-year-old with the mind of a 10-year-old or something like that, but she, she sounds like a 13-year-old with the mind of a 5-year-old, and I didn't like that. No, but I, I guess what, what I'm saying, authentic. Yeah. With Pattern, it is, um, he has a childlike wonder about him. He loves the lies and the, the as he calls them, the lies, the uh, <laughs> yeah. whatever we want to call them. <laughs> His interpretation of the lies, yeah. Yeah, anyway, and so he, he, he has that. I think you kind of nailed it, Rob. He has that kind of giddiness about him, that <clears throat> impetuousness was a good word for it. So I wonder if that just plays into the humor aspect that we were talking about. That's all. It might, yeah. 
Okay. Um, um, I've got a I've got a Shalon thing. If you guys don't mind, let's hear it. So back at the at the very beginning of part four, we're going way way back. There's a conversation that she has uh, with Pattern. She's doing her whole avoidance thing, right? Uh, not wanting to get into whatever the real yeah, issues are. She and, does. and he says, Shalon, I know that you have forgotten much of what once was. Those lies attracted me, but you cannot continue like this. You must admit the truth about me, about what I can do, and about what we have done. More, you must know yourself and remember. And uh, this kind of this idea you must know yourself you must remember you must confront the things that you're trying to avoid uh, i really really like this idea of an alternate journey that she goes on where she is on a very different journey than kaladin that you know who we followed in book one as we kind of discussed they are two very different types of characters who have very different ways yes. of confronting and avoiding truths and whatnot and her so where where kaladin in book one it was all about he can't stop confronting the truth about himself, at least as he sees it. Um, yeah. Whereas Shalon cannot stop avoiding the truth about herself. It actually uh, it reminded me a lot of the Sword of Shannara. Uh, I don't know. If you oh yeah, that. yeah. Oh, I. So oh, if yes. you if you care about <laughs> if you care about spoilers for a forty three year old book, then you can go ahead and skip ahead sixty seconds. But essentially. The conceit of the Sword of Shannara is the sword is not a, a sword as such. Its true power is whoever touches it must confront the absolute truth about themselves. And if they can conquer that, if they can absorb the, the unvarnished truth about themselves and their past and their, their personality and all that stuff, then they will achieve actualization and, and true power and all that, you know, kind of like Eastern uh, stuff, yeah, uh, philosophical is. stuff. Anyway, but it's a kind of a similar thing where if she is ever going to come into her true power uh, and swear her ideals that we've seen Kaladin go through and all that stuff, she is going to have to, uh, you know, essentially uh, wield the sword of Shannara. She has to confront herself. And, and this, is, this is what makes her character so fascinating. By the end of this book, we have her admitting what happened. Right, she has been avoiding thinking about this for two straight books, but now she, okay, so she has admitted what happened. And I'm going to very, very lightly spoilerize book three and just okay. say that this is a theme that is going to continue for her. Um, it, it, this, is, this is not something yeah. that she solves in book two, right? Yeah. Um, we, we kind of spend book two getting to know what her issues are. <laughs> And then we're going to have to actually watch her confront those issues um, in future yes. books. Yes. Yeah. Drew looks like we he's are. to crap his pants. I have one quote to back that <laughs> I'm, up. For I'm you. just trying. But, I'm, like, Craig, Craig broke the, the spoiler seal a little bit, but I'm trying not to. <laughs> I'll just oh, say this is yes, a rhythm Craig of war right. thing. No, I'm just going to say yes, Craig is right. This is going to be an ongoing, you know. Yeah, I don't want to spoil anything for Oathbringer, but 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 yeah. <laughs> no, no, definitely. And if I may lend one quote here to back up, or at least to give context to everything you just said, Craig, I want to draw everyone's attention to chapter 57 of this book. <clears throat> Malchin was stymied, for though he was inferior to none in the arts of war, he was not suitable for the Lightweavers. He wished for his oaths to be elementary and straightforward, and yet their spren were liberal as to our comprehension in terms pertaining to this matter. The process included speaking truths, 
as an approach to a threshold of self-awareness that Malchin could never attain. I am really excited, by the way, to, um, and I know this is going to be the kind of thing that I suspect will frustrate the hell out of you, Rob. But okay, bring it. In future books, and this is this is not a spoiler spoiler thing. This is a prediction thing. Um, in future books, I bet we're going to get to a point where there will be prominent characters who don't just stumble but fall on their way to uh, to full knight radiant hood, knighthood radiant, whatever. Like there will be there will be characters who um, who try to you know oh, how many ideals are there? Five ideals. Five. Yeah, so Five. characters who get to the, you know, they've sworn their fourth ideal and they're trying to get to oh. the fifth, and they and they stumble so hard that it uh, that they fall. I don't know whether that means death or they become a bad guy or whatever, you know. Well, but so there will be in... a lot of that, and I'm excited. Oh for dang it. it! Never mind. I'm gonna shut up. <laughs> oh, <boy>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, That's we'll, we'll save that about. for oh, uh, for the spoiler discussion, but. Yeah, but yeah. I'll admit to a little bit of impatience with Shalon, just a tiny bit of impatience with Shalon during um, hers and Kaladin's adventure in the chasms, and boy, doesn't that sound like a euphemism. Uh, but my bit of impatience was only with a couple of, of her like more forced jokes. All in all, she's an absolute delight to read for the sequence, and, and, and the sequences that follow after, of course. And of course, who can forget the first time they read that big revelation chapter here, A Thousand Scurrying Creatures. You know, the sheer beauty and the, the horror of this scene. His Sanderson's prose and his rhythm really stand out here. I love these added little details while her father is raging and he's literally destroying his children. In the background, this recurring beat, Shallan poured wine. You know, I just... That, that scene was so superb. And maybe this would have been better suited for a style discussion point. Uh, but I, I love that scene. A Thousand Scurrying Creatures. I legitimately think that is some of the greatest writing that he's ever done. So I'll leave Shalon with that. Yeah. Okay. Any other characters that you want to discuss? Did we need to talk about Dalinar? Is there anything Dalinari in these sections? I didn't really have much time. I, like, I'll, I'll admit that uh, my Cosmere or my, my theory crafting segment went way longer than I expected it to, so I didn't really have a lot of time to, to jot down notes about Dalinar or, or Adolin. Um, well, hey, but, we're only uh, 70 minutes in. Why not take longer <laughs> on the character section? <laughs> yeah. No. You know, I, I just say I love this moment with Shallan and, and Dalinar when she finally reveals the nature of her abilities and she light weaves in front of him and she surge binds in front of him that tear from the eye of Dalinar Colin. Just yeah. what a moment for the both of them. I loved it. It was... Man, there were three such moments, right? There was Dalinar having this realization with Kaladin coming out of the chasms where he's like, you've been what I'm looking for. And mm. and Kaladin says, no. Oh, the dramatic irony. Oh, my God. Once, once maybe I was, but not anymore. And then he has the moment with Shallan, and she's like, uh, "I, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think I am, but I, I will be if that's what you need." Kind of a thing. And then he has it again with Kaladin, and he says, "Yes, finally." I love that. Oh my god, so good. It's genius. Like the, the man's a genius. Yeah. I, I, okay. So I was going to talk about this with you know. A couple of things we touched on earlier, but it's just built up. 
<clears throat> when people talk about Brandon Sanderson as a writer and say like, oh, he's not he's not a great writer. Like, oh, he can he can like structure a fun story and and build a cool world, but he's not a great writer. <laughs> as as though that's not good writing. But it goes beyond that. He may not use glorious beautiful stained glass window language but he can write a sentence that is beautiful using just a few normal words six words i have one that's six words that i'm going to be drawing forward to later like you can you can have a sentence where calden says yes finally and it is beautiful because that's what Brandon Sanderson can do as a writer. You know? You can have a sentence with with third grade words. And and I, I will say that almost makes Brandon a more impressive writer. Because he doesn't need to reach into the thesaurus to come up with a you know a five dollar SAT word. Yeah. But it's the story and the character that he's built up around the moment that a, a character saying a simple freaking sentence yep. turns into one of the most gorgeous things you've ever seen on a page. Yep. Yeah, that simple, that's, that simple freaking sentence is the definition of elegance. It's beauty with simplicity and through simplicity. I love. There's there's nothing else to say about that. I love. You're absolutely right. Okay. So can I? This is again getting back into our style section. Uh, sure. But but Drew, you took us there, so I'm I'm gonna. I know this. I did. I hey look, this is my role on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We embrace so it. Let's hear. It. I, I I'm holding in my hands the uh, the Oxford Book of English Prose. Okay. So this is a collection of uh, writing just of prose excerpts from great authors. Uh, it was compiled like a hundred years ago. So, you know, it, it's, it doesn't I'm have pretty Brandon sure Sanderson I know here. exactly what you're about to read to us, but if go you, on. If you have listened to the legendarium, then you've heard me bring this up a lot because I think this, this particular passage in its entirety has changed, not just my views on writing, but my views about so many things in this world uh, and, and the way that I interact with it. Anyway, but that's neither here nor there. Here, we're talking about prose and the power of Sanderson's prose. So this is uh, a, a scholar, an English scholar by the name of Arthur Clutton Brock talking about the cardinal virtue of prose. Uh, and he says that uh, he, he contrasts it with poetry, right? Prose versus poetry. And he says, prose of its very nature is longer than verse and the virtues peculiar to it manifest themselves gradually. If the cardinal virtue of poetry is love, or we might say passion, maybe, right? The, uh, passion, poetry like is passion. Yeah. The cardinal virtue of prose is justice. Uh, and whereas love makes you act and speak on the spur of the moment, justice needs inquiry, patience, and a control even of the noblest passions. Um, let's see. The master of prose is not cold, but he will not let any word or image inflame him with a heat irrelevant to his purpose. Unhasting, unresting, he pursues it, subduing all the riches of his mind to it, rejecting all beauties that are not germane to it. 
making his own beauty out of the very accomplishment of it, out of the whole work and its proportions, so that you must read to the end before you know that it is beautiful. And this, I, I think this is really, really uh, key insight into what good prose is. So when people talk about, oh, Sanderson isn't maybe the best writer out there, they're thinking of somebody like, uh, like Pat Rothfuss or like Glenn Cook or somebody who takes really, really great care with every word of every sentence and, uh, and, and poeticizes those things in a way that these people find beautiful where they don't see that in Sanderson's work. Whereas what he's doing is more about the long game. You, you read 1,200 words of Words of Radiance, and by the end of it, you have come to understand these characters and the situations and whatnot so that the story itself is beautiful. And the words have given you an insight into the story. It's not about the goddamn words. It's about the story. It's where um, they fit. Yeah. It's the context. It's, and uh, so yeah. he, is, he is what I would call a master of prose. Whereas what I think a lot of the people who complain about him are looking for is a master of poetry. Mm -hmm. and, and so this is the reason why I have and probably always will say Gene Wolfe is the greatest writer of prose I have ever read. And that is he does that long game. He does that same kind of uh, build up. Everything written is pertinent. It's not extraneous. It's not flowery. He does it in the same way that Brandon Sanderson does. But at the culmination, his mastery over the English language allows for more evocative use of words than what Brandon is capable of. Or what Brandon has shown himself to be capable of. And I will say... I think Brandon is capable of more than what he has shown. I will agree. And with that. I know he has I've seen moments I, that peek through that. I mean, I'm I'm just going to pull this up right now. <laughs> as as an example, I actually highlighted this because there's an anecdote about it. In uh, in in Kaladin's duel with Zeth, there is a line. Zeth flew by in a sweeping flash of silvery metal. Kaladin deflected the blow, the spear in his hand vibrating with a plangent ding. <laughs> plangent! <laughs> plangent! You, you people out there saying Brandon has the vocabulary of a, a second grader? Like, plangent! Come on! None of you know that word. <laughs> Do you know that word, Drew? No! I didn't know it before I read this book. Sorry, I just got back here from a little break that I took. Like, <laughs> I learned that word with this book, yes. Yeah, and, and, and this, this connects, this loops back, because when Brandon wrote Elantris, uh, I, I heard this anecdote chatting with Brandon, and I brought up Gene Wolfe, this guy who had such a mastery over the English language that even ridiculous-ass words like that felt normal when you're reading his prose. And Brandon said that in the draft of Elantris that went to his editor at Tor, 
oh, he yeah, used the 100%. word inchoate. I-N-C-H-O-A-T-E. And his editor sent it back and said, you need to change this. You can't just turn into Gene Wolfe for one sentence. Yeah. He's yeah. like, I no, that's... Actually... Yeah, except here we that are in, in Words of Radiance. This book came out in 2014, and he uses the freaking word plangent and turns into Gene Wolfe for one sentence. <laughs> He's carved out way for himself. He can do that. He's earned that right. <laughs> exactly. I, it's, I it's love the it. Mark, it's the mark of a good prose stylist that they yeah. can teach you a new word uh, without you having to look it up necessarily. Like when you oh, well, yeah, I that, mean, you can. there are two ways that you can confront yeah. that word or, you know, when you come across something like that where you can just yeah. kind of let it like roll over your mind and not think about it. Or you can take it in context and understand what it means in context without ever having to look it up. And right. hey, I think he does that really well. Yeah, like you can read that sentence, you know, uh, vibrating with a plangent ding. And you're like, okay, plangent, that means like a like a bell kind of like, ding, you know, uh, a, a metallic resonance. You don't need to look up that word, but that's a word that 99.9% .9 of people who read Words of Radiance didn't know beforehand. <laughs> I'm one of them. I have no shame in admitting I did yeah. not know the word and plangent until I I, I know we've gotten it. way off of our character discussion and, and, and <laughs> recursively back into uh, style, uh, but as I said, that's podcast, what I do on this debate, podcast. Not a not a lecture. But like, man, I, I've, been in, I've been in a couple of discussions over the last couple of days where people were trying to trash on Robert Jordan and Brandon Sanderson saying they're not good writers and that they can't write good prose. And I've said this so many times before on the podcast, they're wrong. These guys are damn good. <laughs> so. Right. Yeah, no. Uh, my last of all my character discussions is just one point about Teravangian. If I may be permitted to talk about Teravangian for all of 30 seconds... Yep, do it. Yep. All right. Teravangian's interlude. Oh my god, I love this entire scene. We get so many answers to questions that we didn't even know how to ask at this point. We learn about his particular ailment. We get some more context for the, the Night Watcher and what she can do. We get one of the coolest character motivations I have ever beheld. A man who spent one day with the intelligence of a god and is now living his life trying to decipher the clues that he left himself on that day to save the world. That is, that is, objectively speaking, that is fantasy gold, that idea. And the epigraphs that follow, that we get to give more context to this. This one, and I, I, I drew a, a really quick point earlier about these six words that, that are so aesthetically gorgeous. I, I get chills, I get goosebumps every time I read them. And that is, in one of the epigraphs, you must become king of everything. I f***ing love those six words so much. And every time I read them or I listen to them, I legitimately get goosebumps. Amazing. Teravangian is just awesome. I don't like him. Sorry, I'm, I want to draw, draw that point. But he's awesome. Yeah, his... Uh, oh, those epigraphs are... Glorious. Oh, you didn't talk about the code. Well, Sorry, I, I figured we were going to get to that in the lore stuff. Oh, okay. But, go ahead. Uh, okay. Sweet. Um, 
his the choice to have the epigraphs from the diagram after his interlude was beautiful. Um, and the way those, ep- excuse me, uh, those epigraphs tie into what comes in the chapters after them is out freaking standing writing. Like, holy crap. They're not directly, they're almost never directly related to the events that are going to happen, but there's always a tangential relation. Like, mm, mm, so good. So good. So but. that's the end of my character discussions. I am ready to go into our miscellaneous Cosmere-wide spoiler discussion. I am too. And unleash, it's going to get real. Unleash the Drew. It is going to get yeah. extraordinarily real. <laughs> I'm going to... Right here, hold on. I'm in Audacity. Oh, Audacity right now. I'm in... Uh, what is it right here? Count. I have 1,700 words as prep for my miscellaneous and Cosmere-wide <laughs> like, spoiler discussion here today. So I'll give it to Drew first to start us off. Drew? All right, well, Throw something at us, dude. The first thing we started with was the lift interlude. Yep. Just going to reiterate something we went over in our Edge Dancer episode. Okay. Uh, she's a youth. She's at least 12. I ain't 12. Lift snapped, looming over them. They turned up toward her. I ain't, she said. 12's an unlucky number. She held up her hands. I'm only this many. 10? Tigzik asked. Is that how many it is? Sure, then. Ten. She lowered her hands. If I can't count it on my fingers, it's unlucky. And she'd been that many for three years now. Alright. Yeah. Lift is thirteen. Yep. She has not stopped aging. In Bosharan years, that's closer to fourteen, right? Uh, it, yeah, it's 1.1 years. Right. Yeah. So I added 1.3 onto that, you'd be at 14.3. Okay. Are, are we... Okay. <laughs> I can't remember. Have we done discussion on the Rhythm of War preview chapters? Nope. Not at all. I actually had a couple points that I want to talk about there, but I was like, oh, I don't know if Craig has read those or if anybody listening has read those, so I'm not going to include them. But I... I yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm going to not, because while we may have listeners, you know, who have read them, I think we probably have a lot of listeners who are choosing not to. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait on that. Um, but, okay, we're going to move on. We're going to okay. move on. And this is Shalon hanging out in Sabariel's camp. And the quote is, flopping down with a cup of red wine did not seem prudent. Have we ever heard about red wine before? Uh, yeah, oh, we've heard say. ruby wine, but we haven't heard red wine. Well, ruby wine would be red wine, I would think. It just yeah, seems a that- very interesting word for an artist of Shalon's caliber to say red and not ruby. So, I'm going to leave that. going to leave that. Okay. We're going to move on. To a Kaladin scene. He's in prison. He says he stood, waving away some strange spren, like taut wires crossing before him. Yes! I made a note on that one as well. <laughs> yeah, I think we all did. Perfect. I love that we're on the same frequency. Go where's, ahead, Drew. Where's Axie's the collector when you need him? <laughs> oh my god, that's so close to, to what I said. 
<laughs> I said somebody phone axes immediately. <laughs> yeah. So do we know at this point what the significance is of the taut wires? Oh, they're well, captivation, captivation spread. Oh, uh, yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. Right. That's yeah, what yeah. Axes cause... has been searching for for so long and he can't quite find. And even at the very, very end of his interlude in The Way of Kings, he's going to be arrested by the guards because the child took away his robe. And he's like, oh, I'm going to be arrested for nudity. Oh, well, at least I'll have another chance to search for captivity <laughs> spread. That's the entire reason he was there in Iriali or in Eri, was it? Or was it in... Uh... He was, uh, he was uh, at the Pure Link. Was... Was... No, no, it was in, it was in uh, Eri, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah he, was, he was at the Pure Lake, and yeah, so like these are the incredibly rare captivation spren that he's been searching for. And keep in mind, he, Axes is very old. He's very, very old, and he has still yet to find these, but a captive windrunner, somebody who owns the winds and trapped in a cell, can just attract these like nothing, and he just waves them away like, like he doesn't even notice. I'm going to leave discussion of this quote up to Craig. Because I know Craig has some limited time tonight. Oh, that's okay. Go for it. If we want to discuss this, we can. If we want to like some of the things on the Dude episode, we want to leave it up to the the audience to discuss online. Okay. Yasna had once defined a fool as a person who (laughs) ignored information because it disagreed with desired results. Oh, boy. <laughs> I, first off, I have made a point to bring this up in other discussions because I love this definition of a fool so much. That is, to me, I think I didn't really, I had this nebulous definition of a fool in my headcanon before this, but when I read that, I thought, oh, this is perfect. This is the rock upon which to place my hand. This is precisely what a fool is, and I absolutely agree with that interpretation. That said... I mean, I watched the debate last night. Yeah, <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. We're recording this on the evening of uh, September 30th, 2020. I, I mean, I have seriously another 1,500 to 1,600 words to go through for my Cosmere like discussion itself. And I know Craig is on limited time. I don't think we could fit this particular discussion in today. No, it's, it's okay. But if you guys I, are willing. I... Uh, I, I've already set up. I, I had some panelists that needed my help to get their own uh, episode going, but I set them up via text, so they're fine. Uh, wonderful, wonderful. I, I am yours for the evening. So, <laughs> okay. uh, speaking right. of phrasing, this, this is why uh, I am. You know, every time I take a, a quiz, every time somebody asks me what my order, my night's radiant order is, you know, all that stuff. Uh, I come down as an else caller every freaking time. Really? Okay. Every time. And, and it's not close. It's not close. Um, and, and this is the sort of thing that uh, th- this is exactly why. It's something that I strive for. And, okay, so let me back into this kind of slowly. Oh, no, let me, let me charge into it head first and then back out slowly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And just say that this is, uh, this is a great definition of a fool. It's a wonderful definition of a fool. People who don't think through what they're going to do. Uh, so, Rob, read it to us. Or, sorry, Drew, read it to us again. The definition of a fool. As someone who disagrees with... It, with uh, des- uh, who discards... I, I used to, I used to yeah. have this memorized. It's fuck. I was trying to flex there. Go Yasna ahead. defined a fool as a person who ignored information because it disagreed with desired results. So this is one of those things that we all love to point out in other people. 
uh, that they are, you know, you're not taking into account this piece of data or, you know, or, or this, uh, you know, anecdote, whatever, you know, you're, you're not, uh, you're not really, you don't know about my situation. And so you, your conclusions are incorrect, obviously, because you're not taking into account everything. But honestly, this is the most human thing ever. This is something that we all do. And uh, the idea of, of Yasna as an else caller, and something that I like to think that I strive toward, and that I, you know that I want to encourage other people to do as well, is to you can't necessarily entirely overcome this because it's part of human nature to try to confirm your priors, right? You can't entirely overcome this, but you can fight against it. You can try hard to take into account the stuff that is in front of your very eyes. Um, before you come to a conclusion or to, you know, just be willing to change your conclusions. And so, you know, you, you brought up the god-awful debate from last night, and by the time this airs, that'll be ancient history, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, no, but, I think that's going to go straight into the history books, my friend. <laughs> but, that's, but, that's, but my point is this is, uh, this is about more than just some, yeah, you know, point in history, some footnote in the books this is uh, this is something that we come across every day of our lives, with every small and large decision, and uh, and it's something that we should all keep in mind. Try your best not to be a fool, but you'll have every, foolish moments. Yeah. I I Everybody will knows somebody who freely fits this admit that I have found myself in discussions online and not where I have wanted to. And have ignored information because it didn't agree with the point I was trying to make. I mean... Yeah. Or yeah. at least, other, like, sometimes I find myself downplaying the significance of certain information. Oh, yeah. Because I really want to drive my point home. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's definitely indicative of the human condition. I think that's a really good point to make, you mm. know? Regardless as to your stance, this is something that we all have to, to acknowledge and, and we have to see in ourselves. I mean... Yeah, I, I think yeah. A, a more um, a more genuine definition, a riff on Yasnas would be those who refuse to acknowledge that they ignore information to the detriment, you know, of their desired result. Well, but I, I think they're uh, yes, I think that's right, but um, but I think a lot of people. Even if they acknowledge it, sometimes they just, like, brush it off. Yeah. That's what I was and, talking about. Like, just, like, downplaying it. Acknowledging it, but downplaying it. You know, yeah. trying to spin uh, it. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Like, people, uh, people avoid yeah. discomfort. And so when they're confronted with this idea, <laughs> they're confronted with this idea that they, that they avoid uncomfortable truths. And so they avoid that fact that they avoid uncomfortable truths, mm -hmm. right? So yep, yep. that's a, a, again, a very human thing. There's not a person on this oh. podcast or listening to this podcast who does not do this. So, but it's, uh, <sighs> but it's up to all of us to try to fight against it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and while, you know, I've said this in the past, we, we try very hard not to get political on this podcast. I think this is, uh, a, a point that is extraordinarily mm, prescient, exigent, <laughs> exigent. Yeah. That's what I was looking go. for. Thank you. Uh, and and I would encourage all of our listeners to take this to heart. 
So, especially and, and, if you live in the United States of America right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm speaking as a Canadian. I implore I'm you seriously as a Canadian here. I yeah, I'm I'm not coming down on any side of a political spectrum right now, but I would just really implore you to take. No, there's nothing wrong with encouraging self yeah. uh, humility. You know? So and, and self-realization. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. So let me let me pull it back to the story. I'm going to save you, Drew, and pull it back to the story. Throw in that uh, little tube, yeah. So, uh, by this definition, Yasna, kind of a fool sometimes. Yeah. Yup. And, and here's it, the thing, Yasna might admit that. Right. Maybe. I'm not sure she would, but I'm she not, might. I'm not I'm sure, not sure yeah. she would either. I said she might admit that. She might be... <laughs> no, but her, her whole um, her fixation on the Voidbringers and, and being absolutely sure that she's right, she's not looking for... Uh, she's not looking for data to learn something she's looking to confirm what she yeah this is uh, something knows else. to be true yeah mm. that's something else that i saw it said uh, somebody had said this at one point they said you're not this I, I i witnessed this discussion between two other people online they said you're not um researching honestly what you're doing is your opinion shopping ideas to confront your subjective worldview and i thought okay that's a little harsh but i, I it's valid well, you know, some people do do that. They, and some people call it cherry picking. But when you're opinion shopping, that's I think where you make a a significant mistake. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, all right, going more into uh, our Cosmere spoilers and our little miscellaneous points here. Are we done with this uh, minefield of a topic? Uh, uh, quick, well. quick break. I am hearing an echo of Rob. Okay, you're hearing me twice? I am not hearing that. It might be coming from Craig's end. Oh? We see. Right, am I coming through your, your speakers in front of you, perhaps? How about now? Say that yo, again? Yo, 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 yo. Yo, 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 yo. No yo. echo on my end. It, yeah, I think it's better now from Craig. Okay, yeah, it might have yeah. just been coming through my headphones a little bit. Yeah, that, that I had that problem for the first eight minutes of this podcast when you're doing your recap, Drew. I realized that your voice was coming through on my ends a little bit, so I turned my headphones down to minimum. I could barely hear you guys now, but all right. So let me ask you a question. When in this section, do we talk about uh, predictions as well? And like because I, I we have can. a question. Sure. That, sure. Uh, Especially yeah. That Drew might be able to answer, you know, and maybe not. I don't know. Or, or tease us on. Go ahead. I'm just going to take yeah, a quick bathroom break. I'm going to be able to hear you guys. Like, oh, jeez. All right. That's awkward. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we have one of the most dramatic parts of this book is the death and the revival of Syl. Okay. Yes. Right. So Syl, she, and this has been foreshadowed for a book and a half where, you know, the, the Knights Radiant, the ancient Knights Radiant killed their Spren. And that's, you know, we still have shard blades and they're the, the dead Spren and all that stuff. And uh, we have Kaladin killing Syl by breaking his oaths and then reviving her by kind of reaffirming his adherence to those oaths. Uh, by the end of the book, okay? Right. Now, this is, in, in as I'm just reading this through, you know, what, like when I was reading it for the first time, it's like, ah, uh, you know, she, she wasn't really dead, dead. She was just kind of, hey, not much time has passed and all that, you know, whatever. Well, Sprint can't die, yeah. But, Sorry, go ahead. Um, 
Okay, and now we fast forward to Oathbringer. So Oathbringer spoilers on this one. We have uh, Adolin, who goes to Shadesmar and is now, you know, is confronted with his dead spren's sword, who's following him around in this eternal scream or whatever, you know, the, the, the dead-eyed spren. Yep. I can't remember her name. What's her name? Maya Laren. Yeah, Maya. Maya Laren. So, uh, so, in my mind... This is important. Kaladin has revived Syl by reaffirming his oaths. Could Adolin do the same, or could others who hold these dead spren blades do the same? But, you know, like, there's, it's, it's clear, I think we've talked before about how um, Adolin's blade has this vine pattern on it, much like uh, Lyft's <laughs> spren. And so this is clearly a, the, the, the uh, corpse of a, of a, yeah, this is the a corpse of a cultivation spren. And so he would, in theory, if he revived her, become an edge dancer. Uh, would it, he? It, I think that's he? one of the big arguments in the fandom right now is whether he would become an edge dancer or become some sort of like in between thing because he wasn't the one who bonded her originally or the one who killed her. Like that's that's been a real discussion in the fandom. Oh, I haven't heard that. Yeah, and I know a lot of people don't want him. Yeah, I know a lot of people don't want him to become an edge dancer. A lot of people like that Adeline is the main character who isn't a radiant. Right. Yeah. I mean, there there is that. I mean, I do want him to become uh, radiant myself. Just you know, it's something that I I cheer for because I love that character so much. He's so he's so innocent. He's so I would say pure and innocent. But at, at the very end of Words of Radiance, Part Five, I can't exactly say that anymore. But I, I mean, I, I love Adolin. I I love everything about this character. Oh, and the yeah. the idea of him being an edge dancer is something that actually really jives with me because I love the fact that he's such a good duelist already, and that he's already described almost poetically and lyrically in his ability to dance with a shard blade and destroy his enemies. Like uh, edge dancer. I mean, yeah, I can see that. Mm-hmm. So another question for you guys. Okay. Uh, in oh where am i uh the oh shoot no this is going back into part three i think so never mind sorry forge ahead go ahead i mean you could bring it up if you wanted i mean is Jin <laughs> talk about is Jin and elantrian who it's it's the meeting with marais um he has several companions one of them is a a golden-haired man with a bare chest beneath a flowing outer robe yeah um... is that an elantrian uh, yeah. Anyway, sorry. That that's the uh, I, I have that question. Oh my god! I, I don't know. Do... I haven't even focused on that before. Mm. There are we, other we golden-haired time... people on Roshar, but like, yeah. because this is a golden-haired person in robes, um, in this particular scene with Why these other hair? characters, the Elantrians have golden hair. I thought they had silver hair. No, I think they have silver skin and golden hair. Oh, is that? Oh. But the silver skin is a byproduct of their uh, of their proximity to yeah. Atlantis, and so that might dim as they went further from Atlantis. Oh. Anyway, so interesting. I'm and I will just say, forward. he may not be an Atlantrian, but he may be Selish. Jin, J I N, and this is a point I'm going to bring up in a little bit. <gasps> uh, <laughs> the kind of name that is. Right. 
that is in you know on earth that is an eastern asian specifically chinese name now we have seen one other culture in the cosmere so far with that sort of name that sort of you know phonetic foundation from the emperor's soul from the emperor's soul yeah okay okay all right food for thought uh shall i just move on to the next point yes. on, on that um i'm gonna read oh, a line boy. i'm gonna i'm gonna go ahead and read a line um dalinar sending orders to his army before they engage the stormform parshendi i want talib in command of your army dalinar said talking to sabario and I'm sending both Serugiadis and Rust to join him. Does Rust strike you as a particularly Rosharan name? Not really. Also considering that, well, that this might be a stupid tangent, but um, when at one point Zyle... Uh, is asked by Kaladin, I think it is, if he knows the king's wit, and he refers to him, that fool, dust? No. And I think dust is another one of these words. Perhaps. I don't know, but you're right. With Rush, you brought say, this up in discussion. I'm just going to say, Go we, we have seen several world hoppers on Roshar, whose names are English words. Felt. Azure. Dust. Oh, I didn't even consider Azure. Rust? Okay. Well, you've brought to me. You have. You, we've talked about this before, and you you definitely mentioned something about rust in one of our discussions. We were going back and forth, and you. I think you had uh, likened him perhaps to Scadrial, in that there's a whole. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the super there. obvious one because in Era right. Two, Scadrial, rust and ruin is a rust curse. Rust and ruin is a. I mean, is a curse. But yeah. but yeah, that is that name leaps out at me on the page. Yeah. That is and is such a foreign name on Roshar. Yeah. Sweet. Uh, can I put one forward about Shallan's father? Hmm. Okay. So the first of the theories I'm going to put forward today is about Lynn Devar. Uh, according to Shallan, right before the death of her mother, uh, her father was a genuinely happy man. Like he was a good person. He was full of warmth. He was full of love. But the loss, and, and more importantly, the betrayal of his wife, broke him as a person. And in that same way, that loss and heartbreak uh, can, can crack the souls in, of, of people like Kaladin and Shallan and other proto-radiants. Allowing like the nail bond with the Sprint, I'd like to suggest that Odium was similarly able to take hold of Lynn Devar. So... I, I don't. I, this may just answer your your theory straight out. We have word of you might branding. Save me a lot of words. That, uh, like, basically, uh, one or another of the unmade was influencing the Devar family. Okay, excellent. I, I, I'm going to expand upon that perhaps then, because okay. we get these brief few descriptions of this creature that lurks behind his eyes, to quote it, when he truly lo like loses control. And this might, okay, of course, be chalked up to Shallan, not wanting to admit her father is a monster. But let's remember a couple of things. At one point, and I, th I think it was Balat 
who was making preparations to warn Helleran of their father's betrayal and trying to convince Shallan to flee with him. And she claims that she has to stay because, and I quote, something has hold of father, something awful. And his wife, his next wife, Melise, at one point, she actually says again, and I quote, there is a darkness inside of him. I've seen it behind his eyes. Let's also remember that the eyes are widely regarded on Roshar. I think it was in Vorn mythology. The eyes are linked with the soul, which you can see in, in the Ars Arcanum, like the table of the ten essences. You can see eyes, soul, they're right there in the same row. And there's, uh, there's and, and a moment. After, let, me just support, let me just support your point here for a second, Rob. Thank you. Go ahead. Point us toward, uh, there's a scene in Oathbringer during one of Dalinar's flashbacks when he looks, he's fighting, oh shoot, one of the other high princes who's resisting Gavilar's uh, rule. And uh, they're fighting up on the pinnacle of this rock and they lock blades and he looks right into the other guy's eyes and he sees something there and he realizes it's the thrill the other guy is feeling the thrill just like dalinar is and it you know yeah. kind of sends him into this uh this uber thrilly uh <laughs> you know uh passionate knockdown drag out and he kills the other guy right uh, but Absolutely. anyway but there's that that idea where when somebody looks into the eyes and sees a darkness that's very similar in my mind to when dalinar looks into this other man's eyes and sees the thrill behind them where, yeah, yeah they are a window into maybe something that's influencing that person. Yeah, and, 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 and later, uh, near the end of the book, during the heart-ripping revelation where Shallan strangles her father with a necklace that he had given her, and one of the other Davar boys, I, I think it was Jushu, it might have been Wiccan, but I'm pretty sure it was Asha Jushu, he starts crying after... Lin, his father, begins to regain consciousness after the, the poison, and Jushu says, again, and I quote, Voidbringers, Jushu said. He looked up at the ceiling and at the raging storm. They're here. They're inside of him. I think this is the influence of Odium, or perhaps I wrote down one of Odium's spren upon Lin Devar, and that's what changed his personality so much. His soul was cracked... In, or, or broken, in, in, so to speak, when his wife betrayed him and tried to murder his daughter. And everything that happened afterwards broke him enough, but it wasn't honor. It wasn't uh, a proper nail bond. It was some influence of odium that caused this to happen. Okay. By you the way, have you guys talked about the talking? word odium yet? Sorry. Continue talking. I got to... Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, odium itself, I mentioned very, very briefly that I didn't know that odium was actually a word until yep. like maybe one or two years ago. Uh, I think I, you know what it was. I think actually it was. It might have been actually during this book when Shallan confronts uh, Kaladin with being an a hateful, odious man or something yes, like that, or she yeah. describes him as odious, and yep. that was the moment where I went. Oh, wait a second. Is this an actual word? I mean, ruin, preservation, honor. Th these are all words. Oh, my God. Is odium a word? And so I looked it up and I found out what it meant. Yeah, odium is literally the Latin word for hatred. Or um, that which evokes hatred. Right. So when Kaladin, when she, uh, when she labels Kaladin an odious man, uh, there's... She doesn't know what she's doing, right? But it's a signal to us. I wonder if that's why he uh, lost his bond with uh, Syl, is because he drifted too close to Odium. 
he became hateful. He was kind of giving in to that uh, Luke Skywalker dark side. Yes, hatred, yes. Right. Um, he, he so by getting too close to odium, he became odious and therefore couldn't maintain a bond with uh, an honor spread. I would love to take that even one step further. Let's take a look word for word at Kaladin's third ideal. I will protect even those I hate. Mm. so long as it is right nice i like that i didn't think of that that's great i oh my god you might seriously be onto something there yeah i mean i also have uh suspicions that other people are be throughout the cosmere are being influenced by odium as well and i did not write any points down for this so i'm seriously just going off of headcanon and having read this last book three four years ago potentially but in shadows of self at the very end, when Waxilium is holding Lessie's body and he realized that Harmony has betrayed him and, and moved him to actually kill this woman that he loved, that he didn't know was still alive. Uh, there's one moment when Waxilium is holding her body in the mists and he screams. And there is a very deliberate word choice here where uh, Sanderson wrote hatred. He'd never felt such hatred before and hatred is in italicization it's actually you know in, in crooked letters it's italicized and in that moment there's another throwaway detail the mists the mists themselves seem to pull back in the presence of waxilium's cry of hatred and anger and pain nice and so i think there is something happening with other characters throughout the cosmere where odium or some agent of odium is infecting so other people basically what we're getting at is by the time we get all 10 uh you know stormlight books and we get the all the cosmere it's all just gonna be and uh, it's gonna be an 18 million word saturday morning cartoon that's like hatred is bad okay <laughs> okay <laughs> drew you look like you want to speak there let's hear it dude Okay, this part, can we bring in words? No, no, damn it. I, I talked about how we're not doing Rhythm of War spoilers for people who haven't read them. I know. I could see the pain in your eyes when, when we were talking about that. If I, I do have another question to bring up if Drew feels like he can't talk about this. I have like 17 more. Believe it. We haven't even really know. gotten on, into the I'm on like, like a meta train here. I guess it doesn't really necessarily like apply to Rhythm of War, but just the the general attitude that Brandon has talked about with the Cosmere, right? He said, each of these series, you don't have to read all of them to understand what's going on in each of them. Right. And and he has maintained that. So far, ish. Though I have for a while mm, not really felt he was being totally honest with that. And Words of Radiance was the first book where... I did not think that was, you know, on, on a level. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pull up on my old super super old blog that I haven't updated in like three years. 
when when Words of Radiance came out, I wrote a book review. And uh Yeah, I, I, I let me let me look up the date on this. It was March sixth, two thousand fourteen. So this was days. The, the legendary was a scant month old at yeah. this point. Did you say yeah. March sixth, twenty fourteen? Yes. That's the same day that I recorded my Nightblood and Words of Radiance reaction. Yeah, that so I love sharing around. So this is like two two days. Was Words of Radiance this is the March same 4th? day? Yep, March fourth was released. So this is like four, yeah. like forty eight hours after release. In my review, I said the hints of the greater Cosmere plot have always been present in Sanderson's books, but before the Stormlight Archive, they have always been more like Easter eggs, fun little cameos for the astute reader. Here, though, the greater plot that has been weaving behind the scenes and across seven previous books and multiple short stories begins to move to the forefront. Characters from Mistborn, Elantris, and Warbreaker have all been spotted in Stormlight at this point, but it was the absolutely stunning revelation, barely a dozen pages before the end of Words of Radiance, that stands as Mr. Sanderson's ultimate statement. The Cosmere gloves are off. And yeah. it, it, you can't argue with that. Nightblood. No. Nightblood yep. is a a major character and plot device in Warbreaker. And Nightblood's abilities have become a major plot point as of the end of Words of Radiance. Like... A, he can say, oh, oh, you know, if you haven't read it, you think he's just another shard blade, but he's clearly not just another shard blade. You know, like, there are, there are things like this that are coming in two books into this ten book series that belie his statement of, oh, you can just read the Stormlight Archive by itself and understand everything. You no, can't I, I... understand it all. Well, I think that I think his point isn't that you will understand everything, but that you can enjoy the story on its own. And that's I think by the end of this book that is still in effect. Yep. I think that you can still you don't have to know what Nightblood is. For us, you know, anybody who's read Warbreaker gets to that point and goes, "Oh shit." and it's loses like, their mind. Yes. Right. And that's so that's one way of reacting to that scene. Another way of reacting to that scene is, oh, this mysterious character gave him a mysterious sword who wants to destroy evil. And that's yep. the end of it, that you don't have to have the crazy Cosmere reaction in order to continue to enjoy the story. Now, yep. to your point, Drew, uh, I don't believe that he can maintain this over 10 books with all of the uh, overlapping story overlapping that he has done and promises to do, I don't believe that he can maintain that. And at a certain point, it'll be like, um, you know, if uh, like you can't read the Wheel of Time without reading New Spring, or you'll you'll miss out on all the details right. or whatever. Yeah, it's just right. added context. So that's why it's so good. I'm I'm going to read. Uh, uh, an annotation, a Stormlight Archive annotation that Brandon Sanderson wrote, and I won't I won't say what chapter it is or you know whatever or any details. 
but it's something he wrote for Rhythm of War, and I think he is behind the times, but he's starting to admit. Because he has, for a long time, maintained the Stormlight Archive as a series, you don't have to read everything else. And he said this, Most of you probably know that it has been important to me to keep the Cosmere behind the scenes for most of the book series I've written. I don't want a person to have to track all the different books in order to enjoy the one they're currently reading. The large-scale plan for the books, however, has them slowly converging towards certain events in the future. Less crossovers, and more that the nature of what I'm creating is about different worlds who share a background, history, and, eventually, future. So we're slowly moving out of what I'd call the, quote, each series separate, end quote, era of the Cosmere and into the, quote, careful mixing, end quote, era. The goal for these books will be to still make it that you don't feel you need to remember everything or need to follow everything. I hope to be able to walk this particular tightrope in such a way that someone who has never read any of the other Cosmere books doesn't feel left out, but rather that there are mysterious and interesting things happening, but the core stories still make sense. However, if I want to lay the groundwork for what I eventually want to do, it will require more bleed over than I've allowed in the past. This has been going on since Words of Radiance. He's admitting it now. But things like Nightblood being major plot points in, in Words of Radiance and in Oathbringer... Like, he can, he can say what he wants, but these are things that just, like, I don't know. When, when he says, you know, he, he hopes to be able to walk this particular tightrope in such a way that someone who has never read any of the other Cosmere books doesn't felt left out, I'm sorry. <laughs> Those, but the fans well, will make I, you feel I, left I, out when they get so... My response to that, Drew, is I understand exactly what you're saying because I also have read Warbreaker. If someone else has not read Warbreaker and is not, you know, involved in other, you know, forum threads and Discord servers and whatnot talking about these books and they're just enjoying them in isolation, then I think that that person comes to that moment with Nightblood and simply, and that just kind of washes over them. And they say, oh, interesting. Wow. Uh, wow. That's a different sword. I wonder what's going to happen in the future with that sword. And that's the end of it. So to that, I say he can count on that. And uh, I, I really don't want to insult any readers. But <laughs> I with... thought you were going to say, I don't want to insult Brandon. But you're going to no, 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 no. So. <laughs> with the way Brandon Sanderson has approached his, famously approached his world building and his magic systems. An astute reader will recognize these outliers, things that don't make sense. Things that do not adhere to what he has written before in the context of the Stormlet Archive. And, I don't know if I agree. And either you're going to run into a situation where an astute reader is like, this is bad writing, this is deus ex machina. He hasn't explained, he hasn't given me a reason to understand or expect that this can happen. 
and then he just throws this new magical artifact in that solves all their problems. Well, or this person realizes, wait a second, this guy has a connected universe and I need to read other books to understand why this thing is acting this way. Okay, but let's take the end of Oathbringer, for example, when Molash was given a special dagger by one of the Fused to go and kill this beggar who turns out to be Yezrian. Uh-huh. We don't know anything at all about how that works or what that artifact is, but I could totally imagine being a, a reader in an alternate universe where there is an entire prologue, an actual story written about where this dagger comes from. I completely disagree with that statement. <laughs> okay. The moment I read that scene in Oathbringer, I knew exactly what was going on with that dagger. Really? Okay, yes, we're going to we, definitely have to talk about that when we get there. We already know that gems in the Stormlit Archive capture... Trap Spren. Spren. Yeah. Right? Right? Yeah, so it steals his soul. It soul steals because his he's in- a cognitive shadow? Yes. And... And then on top of that, if you've read the rest of the Cosmere, then you understand. This is like but, this is like uh, uh, oh, this is what proving I my point. You you have part of the explanation if you haven't read everything else, where you're like, okay, maybe Spren are like souls, right? And so it, his soul goes into the the gem. But if you've read everything else, then you recognize, oh, this is this is fucking hemolurgy. What's going on? Okay, here. thank you. All right, that might have been the the connecting link there because I so badly wanted to talk about the rhythm of war preview chapters, like well, the, yeah, the, but, the, but no. the epigraphs there, but I can't do that. But there was something that might but, have. But this is what I'm ah, saying. Okay, but when you brought up hemology with with the Stormlight Archive, he Hemalogy, he may say you can read these and not feel left out, but I just don't think you can anymore. And a You're big left part of that awesome. is the marketing behind it. Brandon Sanderson is such a big writer now. He is a huge damn deal. Every book he's written since, what, like 2016 has been a number one New York Times bestseller. Everybody who's picking up his books will relatively soon discover he's writing this big connected universe because it's such a big marketing tactic for them. It's impossible not to feel left out when you start stumbling over these things. When you when right. you it depends what when you hit a point in the story where you're like, "Whoa, what the f- what the hell is this random magical artifact or who is this weird character who doesn't make any sense?" Like and then you realize, "Wait a second. Oh, this has got to be somebody from another book." And and like you will yeah. feel left out and I like yeah. I I don't have a problem with that. I think it's awesome that he's Yo. doing this crossover stuff, building this this universe, but he needs to stop being disingenuous disingenuous with his reader base. If I if I may try and summarize that with one statement, I would just say you're uh, you're not you, there's nothing you're missing out on the book. You're not missing out on the book, but you're missing out on how good it is. And what it means. Well, it was it That's was the, the, part the specific line here where he says, I hope to be able to walk this particular tightrope in such a way that someone who has never read any of the other Cosmere books doesn't feel left out. Oh, they're going to be left out. They absolutely are. In a vacuum, in a world where Brandon Sanderson isn't 
a New York Times bestselling author, you know, isn't a, a multi-millionaire, one of the most famous fantasy authors of our time, yes, he could pull this off. It doesn't work anymore. <laughs> you know what? No, you're not left out. You're just opting out. No, That's no. What you're it, doing. It, I, but it does you feel left out because there are going to be a lot of people, because he's so popular and because he has this growing fan base, people will be joining later on. You know, pe there, there are still people joining the Facebook groups, joining the subreddit, joining Discord chats, you know, joining 17th Shard who have just started reading Brandon Sanderson. And they will feel left out. I mean, can you imagine? I remember when I joined 17th Shard in 2000, what, 2012, and reading the forums there and being like, I have never read these books. I don't understand a word of what these people are talking about. You know? Can you imagine doing that now in 2020? <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah... Yeah, it's it, he. He uh, says he wants to walk the tightrope, but man, that tightrope burned four years ago. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm really impressed of the fact that I still have nine theories to put forward. Oh yeah, so I, I still have more too. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Boyd Bringers, Jushu said he looked up at the ceiling and at the raging storm. They're here. They're inside of him, and then he's cut off. So this also happened. This happened during a, a high storm, the, the passing of a perpendicularity. I'm not sure if that's involved at all, but there it is. If Kaladin's younger brother, Tien, could have been a proto-lightweaver, might not Asha Jushu, particularly when his, he has his substance abuse problems, like Teft, we've seen that happen before, could Asha Jushu actually be a proto-radiant of some kind? My guess would be a proto-truth watcher. And he could actually, when in this moment when he's seeing Voidbringers, they're inside of him. He could be seeing the influence of Odium or one of Odium's spren inside his father. I love this. Not only that, what else was Asha Jushu addicted to? Alcohol. Gambling. Oh, sorry, you're right. It was totally gambling. We saw him in a drinking den, but it was for the gambling. I'd like to take that back. Thank you. What do Truth Watchers do? Oh my god, they see! Dude, you just blew my freaking mind! I've never even thought of this theory before, but I, I'm immediately on board. Yeah, yeah, okay, I just, I, I gave you the tools and you made the house, that's amazing! <laughs> big fan, I'm a big okay. fan. Okay, so sweet, let's sweet. talk about another potential proto-radiant. We already okay. brushed on this earlier. Adeline, right? Okay. And Maya. And in a previous episode, Rob, you went on a, a particular mm, screed about how you you were espousing a theory and somebody online doubted you and, and, and you ended yes. up right. I'm going to do the same yes. thing right now. I mm -hmm. quoted a line from the climax of this book when Adeline was fighting Eshonai. And... He is, you know, uh, the thrill, he's thinking about how he needs the thrill, but the thrill has abandoned him. And he feels disgusted, and he drops his blade. And immediately after that, Eshenai, bam, smashes into him from behind. Inside his helm, Adeline grinned at the Shardbearer, 
This he could do. An honest fight. He raised his hands, the shard blade forming from mist as he swung upward and deflected her attack in a sweeping parry. Thank you, he thought. When you think about combat... That was way less than ten heartbeats. And he says thank you at the end of it. And I posted that. And I was like... He's got something going on with his shard blade here. And people were going down my throat. Oh no, this explanation and that explanation, blah blah blah. Occam's razor, they were probably bringing up a lot. I was f***ing right. His heart rate was 180. Ah. I was f***ing right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a very... Vind- I love it. Mm, it feels so good. I could call up that one guy I was arguing with by name, but I'm, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. I'm above that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's right. I was right, dude. I had the context. That's why I guessed it right. Kiss my Portuguese ass. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, Craig. Anything? Any theories you want to put forward before I continue? I, I have a, a prediction slash question slash general wonderment going on general here. Inc- okay. In the Ars Arcanum. Okay, so mm. I'm going past the actual text. The uh, Ars Arcanum is written by Drew. Help me out. The name is Chris. Chris, thank you. Okay, so... The Duchess Chrysala. She writes... My bae. Uh, I, so I, I actually <laughs> read the the stupid Ars Arcanum. I usually skip it because I don't care, you know. Um, but I cared this time, and I read it. And uh, this is, you know, this is a few weeks ago, so I'm, I'm going off my notes here. But she's writing about all of the, the, the surges that are displayed here on Roshar that we've come across so far. Uh-huh. And she writes about them, uh, generally speaking, like the basic lashing gravitational change. She writes about it in the present tense. This creates a change in gravitational pull, twisting the energies of the planet itself. Then we move on to full lashing, binding objects together. She says, I believe this surge may have had something to do with atmospheric pressure. Move on to the, ne- the next one, reverse lashing. I believe, uh, you know, this is a specialized version of the basic lashing. Um, at its heart, this lashing created a bubble around the object that in, uh, imitated its spiritual link, etc., etc. So, my question here is this. This could just be Brandon not being super careful about the tense that he's writing in. That could be it. But he tends to pay attention to this sort of thing. And uh, it's making me wonder about the future of Roshar and if Roshar is going to be destroyed and the battle, uh, the, the Cosmere battle will be moved elsewhere. And uh, these, uh, you, know, you know, maybe it's Stormlight books five through ten will be somewhere else Six. in the Cosmere. Uh, you know, maybe something else will be going on. But it, it makes me wonder. Okay. Like I said, it could just be him not being as careful as maybe he should be, but he tends to be pretty careful. So, what do we make of this? Okay. Can, okay. So, you are right now uh, uh, kind of going along with a theory that I've had for a long time. I've been pretty public about this. I have been saying since the end of Words of Radiance, I think at either the end of Stormlight 5 or the end of Stormlight 10, Roshar is going to be destroyed. I've been saying that for a long time. And in fact... Wit says something at one point, Hoyd says something at one point in this book, I think it yep. was, that kind of, if, if I may I would throw this see forward, this world I, mean, burn. Uh, I would see the, this world uh, burn. Uh, uh, words of, 
Brandon at one point, he said that the ending of the Stormlight Archive is hidden somewhere in the first two books. In uh, a conversation between Dalinar and Wit in this book, he actually tells Dalinar, look, please understand our goals do not align. If I must watch this world burn to achieve what I must or something along the lines, I'm, I'm paraphrasing there, I will do so. With tears, yes, but I would let it happen. I think there, this, there, this is going to happen. Roshar is going to be destroyed at some point in the future. And so does that mean, because when we, we talk about the investiture that happens on all these different worlds, they behave somewhat differently, not always totally differently. You know, like uh, it's clear that Wit has achieved the, is it the third heightening that gives him perfect pitch? Um, and he maintains yeah. that on, on second, Roshar, second heightening, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I, I so, so some things are maintained and, un, uh, and others are not. Uh, some powers don't carry from world to world. So I wonder what happens to our surge binders if and when Roshar is destroyed and they are uh, elsewhere in the Cosmere. Would that destroy honor and cultivation, though? I don't think so. Sorry, go ahead, Drew. You look like you're uh, chomping at the bit there. I'm just going to say... Um, the fact that Craig is bringing this kind of a theory up based on information in the Ars Arcanum. I know a lot of people don't bother reading the Ars Arcanum because they're like, oh, it's just a glossary. It, you know, it just tells me about like, you know, how the magic works. I, I understand magic. No. Read the Ars Arcanum. It almost mm -hmm. always brings in new information very often in unexpected ways. You go back to Mistborn. You go back to Elantris. Stormlight. There is always going to be new information in the Ars Arcanum. Look at the, look at the Ars Arcanum in the Elantris 10th Anniversary Edition. Vax is brought up. Chris is... <laughs> talking about initiation. That's a term that's never been used anywhere in any of the books, except in the Ars Arcanum. You cannot view the Ars Arcanum as a glossary. This is a part of the book. Do not yeah. skip it over. Even even take what the, the the theory I just previously put forward a few minutes ago we were talking about when I was talking about Lindavar and talking about this creature lurking behind this eyes and I drew that point between the eyes and the soul and how they're that they're viewed yeah. on yeah, Roshar yeah. because you find that in as I said the Ars Arcanum yeah it's right there this is this is one of the coolest things you know like one one of those distinctly Brandon Sanderson uh, Brandon Sanderson things lots of other writers have done glossaries have done uh, appendices. Many of them write them as simply supplemental texts to help you understand, like, like Dune, for instance, or the glossaries in The Wheel of Time. It's like, this is a really complex story. You're having trouble? Go check out the glossary at the end of the book. And that'll help you understand the family tree or, or the, you know, what's going on with the Benny Gesserit or, you know, whatever. That's not what's going on. What Brandon Sanderson is doing here is closer to what J.R.R. Tolkien did in the appendices with the Lord of the Rings, but even more so... Expanding the lore. He's expanding the lore, but it's from an in-universe writer. This is Chrysala. She's one of the main characters in White Sand. 
she shows up in Mistborn's Secret History and in Mistborn Era too. You know, this is important for our understanding of the greater Cosmere. And please, please, please don't skip the Ars Arcana when you're reading these books. I'm just going to say that. Please don't do it because you're going to miss out on so much cool stuff. (laughs) I still have seven theories to put forward. We have to get rolled on this. Um, Ayatil. I want to discuss Ayatil really quickly again. Um, However briefly that we can uh, since we're going to be running super long here. But Ayatil, this is one of the southern peoples of Skadriel, at least her her ancestry is linked there. The uh, Skadriel being the world in which Mistborn takes place. During one brief moment while, if you remember, during Hero of Ages, while Sazed ascends with both shards at the, at, the, at the end of that book, he notices the world as a whole being inhospitable to life except for small areas around the poles. And I'm starting to think that this actually might have been during one of Vin's viewpoints in that book. But either way, it was somebody who had just ascended to preservation. The life can only exist around the poles there. Keep that in mind, that that pluralization there. There is still an entire society living on the southern pole of that planet that we haven't even started into yet. Um, And of course... This this is Ayatel's people, but our best guess isn't that she's originally from Scadrial. I think it's confirmed that she's not from Scadrial. She's actually from Silverlight, which we'll be getting into in later episodes. But at one point, and I want to draw this forward, this one hint that we got, besides the fact that she wears this mask, we didn't have quite the context for that mask yet in 2014. There's this quirk in a word that she uses. At one point, she is asking Shallan how Shallan's going to get past the Colin guards. And uh, she asks, word for word, what lie will gain us access to his realm? She didn't say camp. She didn't say encampment. She didn't say his, his fortification. She specifically says realm. And I figured that was a bit of an odd word to use in this context. I, I was guessing that this might have had a... Uh, been an error in translation, as the Southern Scadrians have clearly done fantastical things with investiture, including spiritual connection. Uh, I think it's spiritual connection there. And that allows them to communicate in languages that they don't even know. Perhaps her own language doesn't have a proper synonym, and so the translation come out comes out a bit funky. Realm was just a bit of an odd word, I figured, to use in that context. Yes. Um... So, this particular scene was some of Brandon's best, like, uh, Cosmere foreshadowing and misdirection. Everything about Yattle in this book and uh, in Shadows of Self in the broadsheet, you know, the, the story, Visitors from Another World, everything about it was to make you think that on Skadriel there were Parshendi there, and to make you think that Yattle was a Parshendi. And at the same time, establish, you know, you know, concrete evidence that no, Yattle is a, a Malwish hunter and the people in the, you know, visitors from another world thing, the, the dude crawling out of the pool was a Southern Skadrian it was super clever, but the thing that really stood out to me in this one was how Yattle, um, uh, when, when 
Shalon makes her start like acting like she's crazy to get entrance, she starts humming. Which is a distinctly Parshendi thing to do. Oh, I actually hadn't picked up on that one. Ooh, Rob, we lost audio on you. Sorry, it was muted. Ooh, there it is. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't picked up on that one. That's actually a really good point to draw. Damn. Damn. Yeah. Humming. Anything else you want to put forward before I continue with mine? Uh, no, I want you to work your way through these as fast as possible, because this is okay, two and right. a half hours so far. Yeah, this, yeah, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is by far our longest episode ever. <laughs> yeah, this is, with, without a doubt. Um, still talking about this mission that Shalon and Ayatollah embark on, there's another lead, uh, detail that I want to throw at you guys and see what you guys make of it. I've been raving about this one for years. At one point in this prison slash asylum for the mentally afflicted pattern claims that he notices another woman in another cell rubbing excrement on the walls to quote uh, there. yeah he says patterns i did not get a good look at what she was writing but it seemed very interesting i think i shall go and, and then shalon cuts him off so i think this is another one of our missing heralds of the almighty first off these patterns clearly drew the attention of a cryptic which is kind of suspicious in itself enough uh patterns already been frustrated with shallan before this see where she sees patterns and he doesn't agree that they exist he goes pattern that, that's not a pattern but he definitely thinks there's something interesting about these patterns that these that, that, that this woman is drawing in excre excrement on her walls and her cell walls he even goes on to investigate he wants to investigate which brings me to my second point shallan just outright refuses to let him do so and again, I'm always looking out, not only for these hints, but these writing devices that try and cover up these, <laughs> I would say, juicy tidbits, which I realize might not be the, the phrase I want to use oh, here. Dear. But right when we get <laughs> and I, what I think is a, another little breadcrumb, Shalon immediately refuses to look into it because she's, she's got a more pressing mission at hand. That's smart that on, on her part and on Brandon's part, but let's remember that at any point, Shallan can just summon him as a blade, or, or just by simply needing him. It wouldn't take him long to scuttle through a couple of cells. Third, the heralds are all insane in their own ways. We know this. That woman fits the bill in that regard. And fourth, let's be real here. This is Brandon Sanderson, one of the ballsiest writers to ever work in this industry. How ballsy would it be for him to reveal later on that not only did Dalinar have one of the Heralds of the Almighty in his cells, but at the same time had a, yet another that nobody knew about. My theory is that this is one of the Heralds, and she's being extremely well hidden. Here. Go ahead. So, I, I don't have ev any evidence to say, like, no, that's wrong, but... I really don't think that was one of the Heralds. I think that was Brandon writing a joke. And I think that uh, Talm is the only one of the Heralds who was like truly insane like that. All of the other Heralds who stayed behind that we've seen are functional human beings. They are just twisted to be um, uh, acting in a manner opposing okay. their okay. previous kind of like ideals, you know, where you have uh, Shalash, who's creative. She's out here destroying art. You have Yezrian, who's wise and, and guiding, and he's a, a drunken beggar who's worth nothing. You have um, 
uh, a Nalan who is is just, and he's out here abusing laws. You know to to kill people who don't deserve to be killed. Like I I think that's you know and you have Ishar who's the the like who's a, who's a mad tyrant king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's the insane god king. Um, I I don't think I see any of the other nine heralds being insane in the way that Tom is. And that's why I... I would argue Yezrian, but okay. But, but even then, he was just a drunkard. Like, you know, he was... He, well, was, he a, was a beggar who was... He was a despondent... nonsense constantly. He was a despondent drunkard. Uh, I, I... I don't see any of the heralds literally drawing cryptic important patterns in their on the walls yeah. you know but but at the same time i can't say that what you're saying doesn't make sense in things brandon sanderson has done in the past so <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah okay um going forward small detail I, I forgot to mention last episode uh, one of my first theories on Marais when I actually did talk about my one of my first theories was that Marais was actually Frost the oldest being in the Cosmere the recipient of the letter Shallan has a specific thought about Marais wondering why he reminds her of Wit although she doesn't actually have that name for context yet but once that was shot that, that theory was shot down because of course we know now that Frost resides on Yolen the original shard world I thought, okay, maybe Marais is a herald, perhaps the patron herald of the Light Weavers, which was my what I thought back then. Which again can't be correct, as that herald is, you know, actually a woman. But there's this line where Marais is described looking at Shallan's sketch like a proud father. That's the detail that kind of made me a little suspicious. I don't know why I focused on that that proud father line, but it still sticks with me to this day. It's just. Another piece of the puzzle about who Marais is, although I'm not sure where to place it. But there it is. Well, Marais is Thalen-born, yep. native to Roshar. I don't think he is somebody else in the lore important. He just is Marais, and Marais is important. But why that detail that he reminds her of Hoyd? Because he's a world hopper. And, and also, I think we just need to... He needs us to remember Hoyd. Yeah, we haven't we haven't had wit in the story as much I, uh, throughout this particular okay. book, and so he just needs to call wit to mind every once in a while so that you don't sure. forget him. Okay. Yep, I, I think this okay. was just Brandon trying to give us a less than subtle nod to like, hey, remember this dude's a world hopper. In case you didn't notice his trophy collection, this dude's a world hopper. He's like Hoyd. Okay. He's going to be around and meddling in things. Okay. I think that right. was the narrative uh, purpose. Cool. I have three more theories really quickly. Oh, man. A couple of which I heard briefly. <laughs> but if you guys want, if you want to take it off here, somebody want to jump in real quick? No, go. No, clearly not. Okay. Adolin in the death of Sherblood, his Rhysadium. There's something special about this species. They're a little too sentient. We hear descriptions of them referred to on occasion as the third shard, and they're the only animal capable and smart enough to carry a fully armored radiant. They bond with I you. think there's something special about their bond with humans. Mm -hmm. We know Hoyd himself has expressed surprise, I think it was, over this particular species and their abilities on mm -hmm. Roshar. I propose that Adolin was bonded with Sherblood, on a spiritual level, with a capital S. And once this bond was broken, 
Adolin, uh, it had a broken Adolin's soul, so to speak. He was rent open or exposed in some way, allowing odium to take hold. I think his murder of Sadius, this violent outburst, uh, was a result of his broken bond with Sureblood. He was so angry in that moment. He was filled with so much hate, or you could call it passion, if you will, that he committed his darkest deeds there in the halls of Eurythiru. That's my theory. Sureblood's bond lost. Adolin's soul cracked open in some way or exposed, Odium gleefully moving in. Counter theory. Sherblood died. Adolin's soul cracked. Minutes later, My Adolin arm. was able to summon his Sherblade in fewer than ten heartbeats. Yeah. Fair enough. Mm. Fair enough. Food mm. for thought. Mm. So I have no response to the actual question that you're asking, but... I want to point out something that uh, if people haven't listened to our conversations on the Legendarium, then maybe you haven't heard this, uh, but I'll bring it up again here. Has anyone here noticed that Sureblood is Adolin's horse named in opposition to the weakness of his brother? Ooh. Who has a blood weakness? Oh, damn. Ooh. Oh, damn. I have not ever considered that before. And it has been years Ooh. since I listened to the Legendarium episodes on this. So, uh, I, uh, wow. I mentioned it in passing there. I don't know that there's a ton to say yet at this point. It, it, it might be nothing as far as lore is concerned. It might just be a, a psychological point to consider with Adolin. But, uh, but it is interesting. Yeah. It's something to Damn. notice. Ooh. Okay, I like that. So, the Circle of Memories in Kolinar, uh -huh. in the palace there. Uh -huh. We get it described from Lon, one of Aesudan's ardents, in his interlude there, the, the Lahan interlude. This is clearly an Oathgate, but there's one detail about this one that I noticed sometime around the release of Oathbringer. It might, have, it might actually have been right before the release of Oathbringer, but the circle of memories, and I quote, was, a round room with ten lamps on the walls, one for each of the epic kingdoms. An eleventh lamp represented the tranquiline halls and a large ceremonial keyhole set into the wall represented yada 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 continues i like to propose that there's something special about this oath gate in kolinar in that this 11th lamp supposedly representing the tranquiline halls is actually a portal not just to a different part of the planet or a different part in, in shadesmar but an actual different planet entirely ashen mm. i don't think so yeah no you don't think there's anything special about this Oathgate and that it's got 11 lamps Well, as opposed to 10? Well, the one on the Shattered Plains had 11 as well. That's how they got to Urethiru. So the 11th represents the Tranquiline Halls? The 11th represents the... Urethiru. They just mis misunderstood it. Oh, there's 10 Epic Kingdoms, not 9? There are 10 Epic Kingdoms and then Urethiru. Oh, and then the 11th for Urethiru? Yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. There we go. There's a spoke in my wheel. Yeah. Yeah, no. Uh, when Shalon is uh, on the, you know, platform outside of Narek, uh, she talks about how it's separated into the, the ten slivers, and then there's a, a, a skinnier sliver, an eleventh one, that goes to Urethira. Okay. Okay. All right. Relaine. Why was Relaine able to resist the personality change of Stormform when Eshenai was helpless? I mean, she can clearly hear her own voice screaming in the back of her mind, but she can't do anything to stop herself. Relaine, however, 
was able to defect entirely, going so far as to salute Dalinar and bond again with the Bridgman and mourn the death like of his people. He didn't. Can I, can Why I, was Relaine? Can I bring up uh, a <clears throat> a word that comes up often in the Cosmere, and that is intent? Yeah. Sure. But yeah. but no, Relaine never got Stormform. That wasn't Stormform he no, was in? No, they were talking about how his war. eyes were red, no, weren't they? he's in Warform. He was going uh, back sure? to... Uh, uh, Narek, and he saw all of the storm forms and was like, oh, this is messed up. And he turned around and fled back. But he already got war form between leaving the yeah, camps he, and arriving he, at... Yeah, in the storm that turned everybody to, to storm form, on the way back, he was caught out in the storm and he changed back to war form. And then when he got there, he saw How all the... Because he's in war form. He's not in storm form. Is it? So, so you're basing this entire thing on that it's described as war form. Like the, like the description of Relaine matches that of war form. Here, let me let me pull up the. Quote I could have sworn here. he was in storm form there. No, he's not in storm form. Um. Uh. Let me let me look up the quote. Um. All right. Uh, While we're waiting, let me just take this opportunity to remind everybody to go support Inking Out Loud on Patreon, uh, because this is going to be a very difficult and laborious episode to edit. Uh, Yes, yes, we have to give this to to, to Pat McCaffrey. uh. Support your friendly local editors, everybody. Okay, so when he talks about Eshenai, he only talks about her on on the plateau when she met with Adeline. He does not talk about her in, you know, like, in Narek. Um, he, like, he talks about how they are all monsters left in place. It, it, he never turned into storm form. He is in war form. Yeah. Okay, I'll accept that just so we can uh, go forward here. <laughs> Actually, really, the only thing I have left to ask about is, is is Graves. What do we think about Graves? Uh, I mean, he's a I mean, he he's died. a diagram. He dies pretty early in the next book. Diagram douchebag. But nobody, nobody had like a stupid little theory when they were when they were reading this for the first time that perhaps he was a herald as well. Because yeah, at one point he was like, "We're we are allowed." Oh, God damn! How is he? How does he phrase it? They're we allowed their we own could, uh, pursue our own goals yeah, yeah. before they're called that upon. Might have been something good. Yeah, no, yeah. but they were going to be called upon by the diagram. No, no, no. He's. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not still saying he might have been a, a herald, but I thought that at first. That's what made mm, me no. think that. Uh, I will. I will call out the Legendarium podcast on this one. Uh, Ooh, okay. Mm. All right, I mean, all right. they they called themselves out on this, uh, where they couldn't keep straight all of the different factions, and I believe you guys thought Graves was in the Sons of Honor, but he is in the diagram. So when you say when you say shout out, what you mean is call out for idiocy? Is that exactly? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. I gotta raz you where I can, de- you know. <laughs> Debunk it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's everything. We can. We can. Okay. You know, I actually posted. This... Sorry. Go ahead. Let's well, hear. no, I was just gonna say we are we are like two and a half hours in. I know. And don't... it is finally time for the final draft. <laughs> Have, did we oh, even do we're not like talk about our favorite moments? scenes? Oh, favorite yeah. scenes? We haven't even. That's what talked. I was about to get into there. Oh my gosh! Okay, actually, okay. I was just how, about to say we we posted looking for listener questions. 
But thank God we didn't get any listener questions, so we can go straight into this, because I only gave them three hours time, right? Oh my God. Ready to start? All right, yeah, let's, let's go. Snap, snap, snap. <laughs> All right. Okay, so, third favorite scene, Teravangian's interlude. Just the sheer amount of questions we had answered and the new questions to ask that it was just introduced here. It was just gold. I loved all of it. Teravangian's interlude is my third favorite scene. Okay. 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 My my third favorite scene would be in, uh, and I'm reaching back a little bit. I hope you guys don't mind. It's mm-hmm. just before uh, part four. It's in interlude number 11 when we get an Eshenai perspective. And she is, uh, she's now in storm form. Um, and she she's one of the first right to get into storm form, and she is uh, tuning new rhythms, mm-hmm. and uh, and I love the way that he uses the rhythms to show how certain concepts or emotions can be twisted just a little bit to make them a little more shall we say odious, right? And so there's a quote in there nice. where Eshenai found herself attuning the new version of amusement ridicule it was yes and it's yes. just it's just one of those little moments it's uh you know those those little things that you can sneak in and see like oh shoot what is it that i find amusing it, you know and and how much of it like do i just do i find ridicule to be amusing uh, and how so how how far along that path toward odium am i you know i, I love those little moments like that yeah and and how applicable is that for like 95 percent of america watching the debate last night political. yes yes anyway, yes very fair anyway my third Drew, favorite third favorite we're going up all the way back to the risen interlude of her oh. meeting the king in quotes of the aisle and uh, being very rash. I love Risen. <laughs> I, I love the character she represents and this is just a, a delightful moment as traumatic as it is but it comes with quite a reward. So. Okay. You bringing up Risen just makes me want to clarify something really quickly that I had said in the previous episode. At one point I said I had been shipping Kaladin and Risen. I totally did not mean Risen. I meant Rushu. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I, when I said that, I meant Rushu, the yeah. Ardent, the one under Navania. For some reason, in the last episode or the one before it, I said Risen. And when I was listening to the pre, when I was when we were doing our Centralist there, I went, Oh my god, I said Risen. I didn't mean Risen. I meant yeah, Rushu. Yeah, yeah. I, I that thought part there. you meant that. Right. Yeah. But uh, yeah. second favorite, Rob. Second favorite. So Kaladin versus Zeth in the skies above Narak. I mean, nothing else needs to be said about that. I was... Uh, this was... You know, it might have been my first, my very favorite scene, but there's still one that I think aesthetically is just written just in its placing in the book that I love so much more. I have a feeling that you both know what this scene is already, but I will put Kaladin versus Zeth above the skies in Narak while the army is crashing. That is my second favorite scene. It's just so spectacular. It is the epitome of epic fantasy. I just, I love it. Very nice. That's a great choice. So my second favorite comes from chapter 87, coming in toward the bitter end of the book. Uh, oh. When we, we, you know, we have Elokar, and he's had this assassination attempt, and he finds himself in the home of the Herdazian. Oh, no. Oh, no. I actually really like this moment. There's a moment when he is indignant at having to take orders in the Herdazian woman's home. and she The she, sound of spoon against plate. I did like that line. So he, yeah. uh, you know, he's, what, what do you mean? I'm king. How dare you? And she says, well, not in here. You're not. 
and it's uh, it's really nice. It's a great callback to a couple of things. Like, I, I mean, you, you think of, um, well, I don't know, maybe I'm weird and I'm the only one who does, but English common law. This is where we get the idea of a man's home is his castle. And in theory, <laughs> okay. not necessarily in practice, but in theory, for hundreds of years, uh, it has been the case that the English king... Even, you know, even though he's the king, if he were to go into somebody's home, it's their home and their word is law there, you know, and it's a great little callback. I love the little scene. Um, the Lopin's mouthing along with his mom there going. <laughs> da, 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 yeah, da, yeah, da, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, so I know I, I'm kind of with you guys about Lopin and, and his humor and all that stuff. That's fine. But putting them together with Elokar was a great moment in a, in, in okay. a very, very intense, climactic uh, bunch of scenes surrounding it. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. that's fair. Okay, so Wait. my yeah. second favorite moment was Elokar's drunken conversation with Kaladin, his, his moment of self-truth, uh, his... Uh, man, As a proto-light weaver? Just, oh, yeah. Uh, and and I I will say, I wish in this moment he had manifested, you know, a shard blade. If this had been like you know, uh, there had been more going on in the background, and and this moment of self realization was what allowed him to you know summon a shard blade for the first time or something like that. I know that would have robbed from Kaladin's third ideal in you know in a few pages but it still would have been really cool and either way i love these kind of character moments and it was beautifully done so mm. sweet so my favorite i hope i'm not taking either one of yours i suspect i may be taking one of yours and probably some of those listening but my favorite scene is chapter 32 the one who hates mm. the the balls it took on sanderson's part to bring zeth into the colon plotline this early in the book this creep factor the intimidating power of zeth and the alien nature of it in this alien world it's just it's the beauty of the writing this the scene is nothing short of perfect it, I, in my opinion it may be the single greatest scene he's ever written and i will say fight me on Ooh. it the one who hates is perfect i love every letter of this chapter yeah I, I mean i'll say i had a hell of a time picking my top three this time around and this is one of the scenes that was like in the mix that i ended up deciding against along with the uh the scene where they're on the plateau surrounded by three plateaus of storm form just glowing red yes. eyes in the dark oh Beautiful imagery. When, when when Zeth arrives from Adolin's point of view, oh. and it's like it's just described the tent flowing past, the wind rippling his long cloak, his head bowed, his his head bowed, eyes glowing with stormlight. Those words, his head bowed, yeah. eyes glowing with stormlight, trailing with oh my god, there's something about that. I mean, I wish I could sketch, I wish I could paint, I wish I had the talent of our artist Danielle, because I would want to. This would be so. Oh. Yeah perfect craig what was your favorite <laughs> sorry 
My favorite scene now, and like you said, Drew, this is really difficult to narrow down. So if anybody challenges me on this, my, my favorite could change at any moment. So that's fine. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> okay. but a favorite scene, chapter 69, Kaladin and Shalon nice. in the chasms. Okay. Um, in the chasms, they're having... So they're wandering the chasms. We haven't gotten to the, the whole chasm fiend scene, Shalon pulling out the, the shard knife and all that. Like there's more stuff to come but my favorite part about this scene is the conversation that they have and how how it brings up questions that all of us should be asking ourselves about how we think about the world around us uh, and, and so essentially they're having a, uh, a great discussion about individual versus collective guilt and uh kaladin says something about how when you know i was imprisoned for doing what any light eyes would have been applauded for doing and Shalon says, and that was my fault? And he says, it's the fault yep. of your entire class. Each time one of us is defrauded, enslaved, beaten, or broken, the blame rests upon all of you who support it, even indirectly. And, and she goes on to challenge that it very, in, in I, what I would think are very effective terms. But the point isn't who is right and who's wrong, but the fact that Sanderson has this scene where he very effectively brings in two uh, points of view that are extremely germane to our current world and situation and, and questions that we're Ooh, asking ourselves yeah. now about individual versus collective guilt. I'm, I'm just going to say that President Trump just issued an executive order on essentially this, on critical, like, like breaking down, uh, like, structures on critical race theory essentially and right and this and and, and my <laughs> point in bringing this up similar to sanderson i'm not here to say like okay so here's what i think and here's the correct yeah way to think about it but it's i love that he brings up two sides of you know ways to think about this issue and both of them are you know both of them have points yeah both of them have things to say that you can't ignore uh, this is exactly how I felt about Yasna versus Shalon in her their debates in the Way of Kings yeah. about religion and the existence of the Almighty. Right. I so appreciate that Sanderson has clearly at least done his homework. Yes. Yes, he has. Okay. So my favorite okay. scene, probably a much shorter conversation here. Very straightforward. Hello. Would you like to destroy some evil today? <laughs> for those who don't know if you legitimately want to see my reaction to reading these words on march 6th i think it was of 2014 you can join and become a patron of the inking out loud podcast and you can get a private link to the unlisted video where you can watch me lose my shit over reading this scene and throw my e-reader into the couch and run around my college yeah. apartment going, oh my god, so, I read So this I, I read this book the day it came out, the whole damn thing, and I messaged Rob, you know, I was like, you know, this book's crazy, and we were, we were chatting a little bit, and Rob was, I don't know, maybe two-thirds of the way through the book, and, and, uh, and he was talking about how much he hated Sadius. And I was very, very clever. And I replied, <laughs> Sadius, fuck him in the face with a knife. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I still have that text and, to this day. And Rob laughed about it. He was like, dude, I'm, I'm so on top of it. 
And I was like, you know, man, you have no idea what's coming at the end of this book. And then I told him, you know what? I want you to turn on your webcam and record yourself reading when you get to a scene with an Amaram point of view. Because that's that's the point of view right before the Zeth scene. And of course I couldn't say yep. when you get to a Zeth point of view in whatever chapter because I would spoil that he didn't yeah. die. Uh, yeah. I was like, start recording at the Amaram scene. Yep. Yep, and that's why at the beginning of that video I'm saying I'm about to find out who Amaram is, or I guess who Zyle is, and I'm going through because I didn't know about Zyle yet at that point. And I'm, it wasn't until the next scene when I realized, when I got to the end of it, and I... I just, it's it's it, gorgeous. It, it, it is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, yeah, so... That was my favorite scene, and, and I probably shouldn't have to explain this, but like... Like I said earlier, my review of the book, this was the... Cosmere moment. This is why anytime a new reader says, like, oh, what order should I read the, the Cosmere in? I will always say, read Warbreaker before Stormlight. I'm sorry, like, yeah, sure, you can read Words of Radiance and, and it will still be great, but the first time I read this book, there was no scene in the entire book that had an impact like this scene, because I had read Warbreaker, my jaw hit the freaking table when I read those words. It was so good. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. And here you Shall said there would be the much to say down. about that, Drew. Yeah, well. Mm, yes. But, but, oh. Man. <laughs> All right. All right, all right. Final draft. Final draft. I'll get final us uh, started. <laughs> okay, I'll get us started here since I have the, uh, the the somewhat boring choice here. I am drinking for today what I grabbed out of the fridge that I had in the, in the garage there. This is just regular vodka. This is Finlandia the vodka, oh. and I am mixing this with mm. uh, some blue raspberry Mio Sport. Oh my god! <laughs> it's what I'm mixing it with. <laughs> and you know, I uh, I was gonna say it's not that bad, but you know, I, I'm just. Who am I kidding? It's awful. Uh, but the blue, the blue raspberry makes it fun, you know. Regardless, it's a nice little. Color I was gonna there. say, I kind of feel you're like it's drinking a bit of like a blue sapphire wine, wine, man. Yeah, yeah, it's a sapphire wine there. But you know, as 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 a point of fact, I'll say, Drew, you had an interesting brew that you brought to the the episode on Words of Radiance Part Two. I think it was you brought it, the catch. Uh, that that was, was one of the two. Yeah. Right. Uh, I laughed because there was another episode where at that time I realized I would have brought that ep that yeah, particular yeah. brew on, and I promised to elaborate on that in the future. Well, I'm going to be doing it already. I figured seeing Kaladin arrive on scene here in the Nexus of Destruction in the middle of the storms, how he saves Dalinar's life after being lashed into the sky, the catch might have been just as or more appropriate here as well, yeah. I think. But it's still well oh, done. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I'm drinking just Finlandia vodka blue. Yeah, no, you're you're yeah, you're drinking blue uh, sapphire wine. Drinking that yeah. sapphire, sapphire wine. wine. Yeah, why not? Yeah, Craig, what are you drinking? Well, you know, this is a three-hour episode, so I have two. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe we did this. Uh, in honor of uh, of Shalon uh, realizing that pattern is not just a sword, not just a knife, but also a key. I am oh. drinking the Key Lime Pie Berliner uh, from Weldworks. <laughs> I love it. That's a, that's a wonderful reach. The, the key for the Oath Gate. Yep. 
I would love it if she had Cheers. been sticking shallot, or she had been sticking pattern into that hole there. And, and Adolin's just like, oh, oh, sorry, and he's got like a bit of pie in his mouth, like he's eating in the middle of this. Yep. So that's that's uh, yeah, that's what I drank in the first uh, twelve minutes of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then How about the remainder of the two hours and yeah, forty eight minutes? Yeah, and this this one I nursed over the course of like ninety minutes, but it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, Epic Brewing's Brainless on Peaches Belgian Ale. So oh. it is uh, it, it is delicious. Maybe not as thematically appropriate, but uh, I can't stretch that into anything necessarily. Oh, you could totally stretch it into like I mean, you opened that right when we were talking about how Nail revived Zeph just before his brain died. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, good point. Right. <laughs> so there you go. Oh, but... Uh, both, both of which, I, would, I will say, the uh, Key Lime Pie Berliner is like candy oh. and, uh, and cannot yeah. be... I, I, I cannot express how delicious it is. Uh, the Brainless on Peaches is a much stronger brew, and it is, um, it, it's, it is also delicious... Um, but I, I've been a little quieter for the rest of the episode on purpose. <laughs> yeah, I've been a little louder, and I think it's because it's a little obvious why myself. Sorry, go ahead, Drew. All right. So I have been drinking a Spectre. And this is special for more than one reason. Not only is this thematically appropriate for this book, for this section of the book, not only is this special because it is a wonderful beer this is an imperial stout bourbon barrel aged for two years with cocoa nibs and cassia bark and if you've ever had a beer aged on or in cassia bark it's a very distinctive flavor but more importantly is the, the breweries that made this beer this is a collaboration between Voodoo Brewing in Pennsylvania and for the very first time on this podcast I am bringing on a beer from Collective Arts Brewing Company in Ontario what in Hamilton are you serious yes sir yes sir Rob has brought on like six different beers from these guys up in Canada oh I'm Oh my god! Yes, it is delightful. This is an 11.5% bourbon barrel aged imperial stout. And you know, we've got some dark, dark stuff going on in these books. But there's a big change at the end of Words of Radiance. There's a new source. There's a new origin. There's an origin of darkness. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Which, uh, okay, so oh. to explain to those who aren't watching what's going on, Drew has held up the bottle and it is in fact titled Origin of Darkness. Okay. Yeah. Mm, I and, love it. I love it. Oh, I love... man. Go ahead. Yeah, th- this, beer, this beer is delightful. And I will tell you, Rob, I have another bottle of it in my fridge. And I am seriously considering paying the ridiculous premium to ship it to you in Ontario. Dude, <laughs> I would drink it. I mean, I love everything Collective Arts. I brought on Rhyme and Reason, uh, Life in the Clouds. I brought on Stranger Than Fiction, uh, Saint of Circumstance. Uh, Craig, you were actually on the uh, Dragon Reborn episode, yep. I believe. I brought on Saint of Circumstance as well to talk about 
something else that I can't actually get into that I almost did just now. But yeah, I mean, I love Collective Arts. It's like my favorite brewery if I have yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. So I was super excited to be able to bring on a Canada beer. I mean, the, the amount of stuff that Rob has done from this brewery, I was like, I got to try something. I got to try something from them. And I, I jumped yep. through a couple of hoops and and got my hands on two Sweet. bottles. Sweet. So. I'm going to drink it out of my little sapphire <laughs> here. Drew, take it away for the outro, yeah, my man. So this has been episode 86, I believe, of the Inking Out. And 87. Nope, 87. And 88. Oh, and yeah. yeah. Oh, God damn it. It was 87. Craig, I just want to say thank you so much for spending three hours with us recording this episode today. Everybody check out Craig Hanks and the Legendarium. I highly doubt you haven't already if you're listening to our podcast. But, Craig... It's been so much better yeah, having you on. Yeah, way, way to be Thank a trooper you. on what is not even close the longest episode of our podcast ever. Um, and the longest night of my life. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you, you had some, uh, yes. some house uh, disasters, as I understand it earlier, so... Uh, That's right. This is a break. This is a nice break. Thank you again <laughs> for having me on. It was it was a real pleasure. Yeah, we we I so mean much, every single time we we love having you on. It, it's always a great discussion. Um, but yeah, so I have been your host Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host Rob Santos. Yes, and uh, as we said, Craig Hanks of the Legendarium Podcast. Cheers, man. Thanks for coming on, Craig, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye, everyone. <laughs>